Alright, welcome back to episode 3 of Retro Game Explorers. I am one of your hosts, Pete Dorr, and I'm once again joined by Bovine Divine. Hello, Bovine. Hello, Pete, and hello everyone out there. So, lucky number 3. My lucky number is actually 3, so this should be an amazing episode for us, right? <laughs> my, three. my shoulders, eight, though, are... So it'll take a while. <laughs> oh, God. Well, at least it's not 69, right? Like, That's probably true. half of our listeners out there. So they have something to look forward to years down the line. My shoulders, unfortunately, though, for lucky number three, are not feeling all that great because I did a stream today that involves guerrilla-style filming, Bovine, with webcam strapped to my shirt collar, constantly hunched over, looking down as I streamed cult hits such as the Gamecom, the R-Zone, and the Wonder Swan. Sure which we're going to get to uh, later in the show. So. Sure you want to use cult hits for that description? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of the, the best way to introduce those amazing consoles, but we're going to get to that later in the show, so that's a little tease for you guys in the games that we've been playing. But first of all, we have to thank, once again, the wonderful people that left us some amazing reviews on iTunes. Many new reviews have come in since the last episode, so very quickly we want to thank all these people for their awesome five-star reviews on iTunes. Dig311Doug, Gemini NYC, Cokehead420 with one, two, three, five zeros at the end. You know he's... Well, we won't go there. That's a serious <laughs> you, user right there. And s- that's a serious username right there. You know that person when you get killed on Call of Duty and like their <laughs> name is like... Cod Killer 420XXX. Don't forget the That's, X's. Don't forget the leading X's too. X, little X, big X, little X. Exactly. <laughs> and if you're even extreme, more extreme than that, you'll have triple X's at the beginning and end of your username. <laughs> what did you have some obnoxious username back then, Pete? Actually, you... the history of my username <laughs> is quite interesting. Um, it's always just been Pete Door. You've always so, used that everywhere you go. Uh yeah. And my reasoning for it originally, I think I was like maybe 12 or so, 11 or 12. Uh, the first ever online game that I ever played. So I used to be an, uh, a moderator for GameRankings.com, which back in its day was actually a huge website. It was you know just as big as GameFAQs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were user forums and user reviews, and I was in charge of moderating the reviews and the forums. I was a, one of the top users on that entire website with submission points so when you would submit reviews or do anything for the site you would get points and uh at one time i was number one except for the site owner Uh, i was number one in terms of contribution to the site and eventually i fell to the wayward but where am i going with this all right so i want to i want to raffle there one time a competition to win a free game and the free game was a pc game called shattered galaxy which i still have my box for somewhere nice and it was a starcraft knockoff but it was the very first game that I had ever played with online multiplayer. So my thought process was, gee, what will I call myself? And I said, well, I'll call myself Pete Dorr, my full name, in hopes that maybe I'll run across somebody from real life that knows me. If they see my name, they'll be like, oh, that's Pete Dorr. I know him. So stupid, right? <laughs> Looking back at it. So that's how I originally got the name. And then it just carried from game to game. I did the same thing with SOCOM on PS2, which was, like, my next big step up after, like, Diablo and StarCraft. So I'm like, oh, I'll just use Pete Dorr again for the same reasoning that maybe someone here will recognize my name from real life. Meanwhile, 
who would it be? Someone from like high school? I mean, who is I looking to reach out to here, right? Lo and behold, I mean, look where we've come now, right? It's, uh, I guess, my my original aspirations for someone to recognize my name have come true because now, you know, not only do I get recognized online, but I get recognized in real life, but also <laughs> online as well. Uh, and it's also gotten to the point now where if I sell something and I ship something to somebody and they see my name, or if mm-hmm. I buy something from, uh, more so if I buy something from someone on eBay, as of late, Bovine, let me tell you, it's been getting ridiculous, okay? I buy something and it's it's almost become like a tradition where if I buy something and I get a message from the seller, I'm like, well, it's a 50-50 shot. It's either the seller telling me the thing shipped or it's someone asking me if I'm Pete Dorr from YouTube. <laughs> it's it's become pretty common and, uh, you know, I, I don't resist. I'm just like, yes, hello, it is I. Thanks for selling this game. I've been after it for a while, <laughs> you know? See, but in yeah, a that's, long that's roundabout the origins way, of the name. In a long roundabout way, your original plan actually ended up working. <laughs> it's funny that you thought, yeah. like in that small internet bubble, you thought, oh, you know, I want to be, if I do run into somebody out there, I want them to know me. So you were thinking in your head, everyone on the internet exists in my little life bubble here. <laughs> yeah, for better or worse, choosing my real full name as my online handle has its ups and downs. But anyway. I, I can imagine. Sirake41 as well, thank you. Colton Murphy, who says, plans on subscribing to your channel, Bovine. You might have a new Twitch sub coming your way, he says. That's always fun. And Apple wins 111. Thank you, everybody, for your five-star reviews. They help us further the exposure of our podcast beyond our little Twitch and somewhat YouTube bubble. And as soon as I get access to my iTunes account again, I will be looking up and reading these reviews from all you fine folks. So thank you very much for those reviews. Yeah, I can't. I can't read these reviews on anywhere but my PC, and I'm more of an iPad person. You know, that's actually something uh, that I found so weird. I, I do almost all of my internet browsing these days on my iPad. I've really just, like, transitioned into a tablet person lately. I do all of my card game playing on my iPad. I do all of my Twitch watching on my iPad. You know, I just, I don't know. I just, I have migrated more and more away from my PC. You know what it probably is, too? because I'm sitting at my PC so much streaming these days that I don't want to do the same thing when I'm doing, you know, that other tasks. Point. Yeah, so I was going to say, my iPad. it's like we spend so much time streaming that the last thing you want to do when you're, when you're done streaming is to continue sitting at the same computer and then doing internet stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's the reason why. Do you find that works for yeah. you, though, to use a tablet to replace? I mean, you know, they always talk about tablets replacing your computer in the future and everything else, but I find it, I find it even harder these days for whatever reason i'm not sure but do you you find it a good replacement for all your desktop activities i mean what do i really do on a desktop besides stream that i can't do on on an ipad if not better i mean of course photoshop i use that on my pc but to be honest i find it so much easier to browse the web on my ipad sometimes except for those apps that you know, if I want to browse, um, oh, I don't know, YouTube, and mm. I have to fight with my iPad to open the browser version because I don't <laughs> want to browse the shitty app version. Yeah. You know, other than that, it's it's pretty smooth. I don't know. I think my problem is that, like, when I first started getting tablets, I would, you know, I had iPads, but I would never, ever update them for whatever reason. I think most of the time it was because I just, you know, the early iPads I received, I always, like, soft-modded them to get free apps and never pay for any of those. But mm-hmm. in doing so, it prevented me from ever updating them. So I would hang on to, like, the original shipping version of the OS. And if anyone's ever hung on to an old OS on their iPads, they know that after a couple 
revisions, you just browsing and using the system for internet, it's just impossible because the browser is like completely out of date and, and you know has all these software updates you need. And that's why they always end up kind of failing for me pretty soon. And it's also a little scary every time you update to a new version because you know they make improvements that are not always improvements. Uh, something as little as you know this triggered me in one of the previous updates where normally I'd be able to swipe up from the bottom of my iPad and the brightness adjustment and the volume adjustment would be there on the same bar. Mm-hmm. And then in the next update, they're like, gee, let's uh, put the brightness adjustment on one bar and then you have to swipe to the left or right to bring up the uh, volume adjustment instead of having it conveniently there on one swipe. It's like, what? You know, just... Yeah. But I, Stuff like I, that. People are probably listening to like... People like they're probably listening. And they're like, "But Pete, you know that's just one extra little swipe." But no, if you use a tablet, you know how much one extra little swipe can mean when it's mm-hmm. a volume or brightness adjustment. I mean, it's, it's kind of a pain. That's why I'm not so much like that. It takes too many steps. It's just you get used to things a certain way, and it works, right? You you kind of model your behavior around it. You're like, "Okay, I'm training myself, and it's gonna, these are the things I have to do to quickly get to what I need to do and get used to." It. And then when they change it, and then the worst sin is to not give you the option to go back to the original selection. That's what kills me, you know. Which reminds me why I still have yet to upgrade to the new Twitch app, Twitch app. <laughs> which I've heard is an absolute nightmare. I still have the previous version because I'm in love with it because yeah. that's all I use Same here. Twitch for is on the iPad. And I've heard nightmares from people that have upgraded to the new version. People have been saying that you can't even pop out the video into like um, a picture-in-picture mode, which yeah. I do all the time. Like you're, you know, the I'll be playing be, a game. The app has to be running at the top all the time, apparently. Really? Yeah. You can't pop that shit out anymore and like well, run it. They said on they top were going to fix it really quick, but I haven't even looked into the the secondary update after the big update. So I mean, I downloaded the new version just to see how bad that new onboarding process is and how what it is that they did that were that was creating all these weird auto follows. So I saw that process, and it is ridiculous. It's exactly what we all thought it was. You know, as a user before, yeah. You can you watching, talk about this in in depth? Yeah, talk about this because yeah, so, I still have not looked at what this actually looks like. It's really strange, right? Because so everyone knows out there, right? Twitch released a major mobile update to their app or just their app in general. And a big part of it, the biggest part of the update was that they were going to give you a bunch of, you know, extended features. They were going to let you stream from your phone. So that's why you see all these IRL streams now with people streaming Twitch content on their phone, which is a great thing. But sandwiched along with that update was this ridiculous notion of them uh, creating this onboarding process. And it's it's a two-part thing. Basically, was this. If you were a user of the Twitch mobile application before, you could just download the app and then search for streams and just watch streams, right? You didn't have to register an account. You didn't have to log in. Now, you wouldn't be able to chat, but apparently there was a large majority of people who would just log into the Twitch app or download the Twitch app simply to watch streams, which is understandable. So ever since this update dropped, anyone who downloads the app, they must create an account to even watch a stream. So this is the one thing I didn't, I couldn't put together. I couldn't mm. put together one in one and one to know what it was. So that was the first part. So what happens is that so every new user or every existing user who used to watch Twitch without an a, account, they would be forced to create an online account and probably using some dummy account or some crazy username that has to have a bunch of numbers appended to him. And in that process, after you create your username and log in, it says, hey, here are some, you know, here are some categories. Please select the games you're interested in. And they're very vague. They're like, you can either select game titles specifically, like Call of Duty or Zelda Breath of the Wild, or you can go to categories like first-person shooters, tactical, or retro. Do they have a retro? They do have a retro. They, well, if they have retro games. So you'll see like Mario 64, or Super Mario Land, or Ninja Gaiden. And I'm assuming they're pulling those from like the... What the, the hell? Speed 
It's really odd, right? And it's a weird, it's like a grid of icons with titles. Wait, so I have a question for you, Bovan, right? Mm-hmm. Both you and I, we, we pretty much almost exclusively stream under the retro category, which is mm-hmm. not even a category. It's a game it's on a PS2. Game. So how are you and I getting all of these follows from people that are like, because we're not streaming under a specific game per se. Yeah, How are so they funding us? This is what happens. So on that grid, whatever they select, they have to select several you know, games. And then based on what you select, it immediately says, goes to the next screen. It says, here are a list of you know, streamers who we recommend you know, for you based on your suggestions. So for example, if they pick you know, Mario, somehow there's some algorithm or some data in the back that you know, associates with us selecting retro with going with retro games or big. That's the only thing I can think of because when I went through it, I knew, for example, at that time, like Fatal was framing, Fatal Frame Rate was fra- uh, streaming at the moment because I wanted to test to see if it brought up a list of streamers who were only live at that time or just in That's general. That's how it works. A list of streamers. It only brings up people that are Correct. live. Correct. It only brought up. So when I, so I kind of went back to kind of test it. Like I only selected retro titles and I selected specifically what Fatal Frame Rate was streaming and it brought them up sure enough in the list and it said here's a list of streamers and it doesn't even say that you should follow it says we have automatically followed these people for you what and so you as a user right then you have to unfollow people (laughs) that you're not but no one knows because it's it shows a little heart symbol that doesn't even say follow or unfollow you're supposed to uncheck those and you cannot proceed to the next step unless you do that so you either let them all stay checked and you hit next or you actually deselect these streamers and then select next. Most people probably won't even care and they'll just hit next. And that's why we're getting all these phantom follows. It's really stupid. I process. wonder what people actually... I wonder what Twitch like uses their algorithm for me, right? Because I play some like weird-ass shit. <laughs> it's like, what in God's tarnation are people selecting as their games that they're somehow getting me recommended? I don't know. But again, right, for your category, you do what I do. You just select the PS2 retro game. So I'm assuming they're smart enough, at least I hope they are by now, to know that anyone who selects that PS2 retro game, that they've kind of wrapped that together with like the speedrunning retro games or any old retro But when is Twitch going to accept the fact that there's a crap ton of people in this retro community that are streaming under a PS2 game that is absolute garbage. Garbage. Shout out to Joshua Blades, by the way, who actually went through the trouble of buying and streaming that game. <laughs> I think he lasted all but like 30 minutes. It it's really apparently bad. horrible. Yeah, it's a terrible game. But, you know, I almost think that these people at Twitch, they must know by now. And they just probably think it's like a cool inside joke and they're just not going to do anything about it. You know, I mean, honestly, it wouldn't throw, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case of what was happening back there, because those guys are doing some strange. They make a lot of strange choices. Let's put it that way. <sighs> but I mean, how do you feel about these? I, I man, I I am not a fan of like inflated fake followers. In fact, I'd be fine if Twitch purged all these like dead accounts that are following me because it doesn't feel genuine. You know, it used to be that when someone followed my channel, it was like, oh, well, Someone's actually watching right now, and they chose to follow. And now it's just like, I can't tell if it's someone that's just creating an account for the first time, and they just hit, you know, accept and auto-follow all these channels, or if it's a real person that's really following. And it's gotten to that point... All right, let me put it to you this way, Bovan. The other night, when I streamed Elder Scrolls Legends, okay, I got 235 follows in that one night. How many of those people were actually in the channel watching? I have no freaking clue. Um... But it just goes to show you like the power of this onboarding program and how crazy it can blow up a channel. Here's another example. My friend, right? He he had 36 followers. 
and he had struggled for a long time. You know, he doesn't stream all that often, but he's, he, he's tried to stream here and there in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell him, because he's playing all the Skulls Legends, I'm like, you should really try streaming it because it's, you know, the community's getting pretty big and whatnot. He streams it in one night and he gets about 130 follows in one night. Mm-hmm. And then he streams in another night. He's now almost up to 300 followers just from streaming like two extended streams. Now, here's the really funny thing. One night he had about 60 viewers the other night he had about 100 Mm. and then he streams again a third time for like five hours three viewers it's like you get all those followers and then none of them follow up because they're not really following you and i i felt so bad i haven't i'm probably going to explain to him what the onboarding system is the Mm -hmm. next time we meet up because i don't think he realizes that all those follows came from people that were not really even in the channel what i think happened was the people checked off that they probably like games like hearthstone and gwent and elder scrolls legends and then they recommended his channel mm-hmm. and then they just followed him so it just goes to show you what this program can do for someone that's new to streaming you can get hundreds of followers that has taken someone like you know me or bovine or many other streamers months if not some people years to reach in like two nights it's kind of crazy in a way i mean it's very distressing and i've I've spoken to this at length come a number of times on my stream and i feel very strongly about this only from the unique perspective from where i've been streaming i mean for you it's maybe a little bit different i mean but you probably can speak to it in the same way but you know i've been streaming since last what august i believe and, you know, I believe that I've been working really hard to try to create, you know, some type of unique content on Twitch. And I, one of the things that was the thing that was, I was using to measure, you know, where I was at and how things were going was that was the number of yeah. followers. Yeah. And it was so satisfying to you exactly. know, work my way up through the first 100, 200, 300, mm-hmm. 400, 500, you know, followers. Because I really felt that every single one of them was someone who dropped in one way or another either through a host they found me through a search recommendation whatever it was i feel that Mm -hmm. it's someone that came in sat there watched made the decision to say hey i like you know what you're doing here i'm going to hit the follow button and it was so rewarding to me to get you know in in a night where i would stream you know early on i would stream for like six seven hours and i would get one or two follows like those were the absolute they meant the world to you though yes exactly it was so precious to me to have these follows and you know, ever since this onboarding program started, like I and you can measure like the growth of my followers as I started, and it was very, very gradual. It was exactly the way you would see in any normal kind of sequence of events. Like you can just kind of measure, it and it was going you know slowly along, and then suddenly the onboarding thing hits, and then in a night I would get you know fifty, sixty, fifty a night, seventy, sixty a night, thirty, forty a night, whatever it was. And you know, while we were trying to figure out this thing and tie the, the two things together, because obviously it wasn't something that just started happening. We you know eventually figured out it was this onboarding program. And ever since then, I just feel like the when I followers are now, empty, they're yeah. lifeless. I, I, not only that, it's worse because one, they're empty follows that you feel that these are numbers you don't deserve. I don't deserve these number of followers at this point. Half of them are you know these onboarding ones that were never even here. But then you have to still pay attention to these follows that are coming because you have to essentially filter out who are the onboarders versus someone actually real who was exactly. jumping in like before. And like I, it's it's almost at random where I get a follow now and I'm like, I look at the name real fast and I can kind of tell sometimes if it's a fake name or not so much a fake name, but an onboarding name, yeah. like a name that was created in haste just because they had to create a name. Exactly. But if I see a game like um, Halo Fan or Retro Gamer or some shit like that, I'm like, okay, I should probably thank that person because they may actually be here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sure enough, some of them do reply back when you thank them. Mm -hmm. But it it just feels so shitty for me to the point where like, 
I don't want to seem like I'm like an asshole, but you know, if you get a hundred follows in a night or more, yeah, it's how like, can you address I, that? how can you address every one of them? And I feel bad for not so much ignoring some of them, but it's just like, it feels really weird to say thank you to someone that's not even there. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's kind of like a double, it's even a bigger problem for me because I have this thing for me where every follower that, you know, ever took the time to follow me, I wanted to give them a huge speech and kind of get to know them a little bit better and spend, you know, some time just to get to know them early on while I was building on, you know, build, while, while I'm still building up my stream mm-hmm. and to kind of like, try to do that long intro with every fake follower. Now I have to have this like pre speech where I ask them if they're there and they're a real person. It's so then, weird. Uh, yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> I mean, it's so stupid because I think I'm trying to sit and think about why did they go this route? Why did they create this process? Because I find it only should to me in real, like I posted, on I know Reddit exactly all, why. And I'll tell you, but I'm curious mm-hmm. to see what you think. Because well, I post, I started posting on Reddit and just getting a general feel for what people were thinking about this. And I posted this very, like the very first day the app came out and the, I was, we figured out what the onboarding program was. Like I went online and I, I was just asking in general, like, well, I think this is a really bad idea for X reasons because you know, of what we've already talked about. And then people were replying and said, what are you talking about? You know, I have someone who gets like hundreds of followers a day and they've been doing it for years. And you think that you're going to take the, they're going to take the time out to follow them. I said, look, good for you and your guy who has hundreds of thousands of followers already. I'm, I'm strict. I was speaking strictly from my perspective, new streamer, small amount of viewers and followers and how it's affecting me because I can only see it, 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 it helping two people, two types of streamers on Twitch, the brand new ones who have zero followers and maybe Twitch wanted to give a helping hand and not, you know, kind of maybe boost people's morale a little bit when they're starting to stream. So they didn't want that despondent kind of streamer who streams for 50 hours and has one follower during like, you know, five months of work. Maybe this process was meant to help that very new streamer out to kind of boost them up a little bit. Or it's meant to just, you know, pad numbers for the really, really big streamers. I don't even know how that would be advantageous to them, but that's my, my train of thought because in doing that, Everyone in that middle class of Twitch streamers, right? Someone who has more than a couple hundred followers, but less than 10,000 followers, which is a huge majority of streamers. Like that's where it hurts them the most. My perspective on it is kind of like what you touched upon where, okay, this, this onboarding thing is rolling out right around the new affiliate thing, right? So (laughs) let's, let's be real here. Twitch is a business. Okay. Mm -hmm. They want to make money. And now that everybody can have a subscription button, I don't remember exactly where it was or what the exact numbers were, but I do remember reading something somewhere that like most people that try and stream on Twitch, they quit within like the first 30 days Uh, and an alarming number of people quit within the first 30 days of attempting to stream like a huge amount. So Twitch probably looked at those metrics and they were like, how can we help encourage people to not quit streaming? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Let's give them followers. Uh, followers that are not even watched. Like, how weird is that though? If you just start streaming and someone follows you and you're like, oh, thanks. How are you enjoying the stream? And then you get no reply. Yeah. And then they check the viewer list and that person's not even there. It's like, wait, what? How does how do you explain this to a new viewer? Like how, I mean, new streamer, new streamer. How, do they, yeah. how do they grasp this? So let's get real here okay twitch is trying to make more money they're trying to encourage people to stream more on twitch they figure they'll give them encouragement by giving them not fake followers but easy followers pad them pad them up and then they'll maybe keep streaming and then maybe they'll grow their audience that way and then you know people will subscribe to them and then they get more money but it's so bizarre it's it's not like cynicism but it's like twitch wants to grow they want to make more money and this is a way for them to do it 
I mean, I think we can see it both ways because obviously, like you were mentioning, this happened so close after the new affiliate program. So what you're saying makes perfect sense, right? In order for Twitch to be able to make more money and take advantage of their own, in fact, their own programs, right? They're they're kind of setting, they're pre-setting up the stage for themselves. They're saying, okay, for all these, for anyone new trying to stream, we have put up this artificial barrier, right? That says you must have 50 followers and then three concurrent viewers. So we're going to help them along with this onboarding program to hit that 50. And like you said, it could be two ways. It could be one, hey, we're trying to be nice and help, you know, give confidence to brand new streamers so you don't quit. And then secondly, you know, you'll get your affiliate button that much quicker just because of these followers. I mean, hopefully the concurrent viewers thing was part of it, too. I don't even know how they can help someone with that part because that part is the tough thing to maintain, you know, viewership. Yeah, but anybody can get that fast. Just get like a Moobot in there and get a friend to just sit in your chat or something and boom there's your three viewers yeah and if that's the case wouldn't you think it would have been easier for twitch to just change the rules for onboarding instead of going through this whole process of the onboarding i mean you know what i mean it's weird it's almost like backpedaling when they created this barrier then realizing they can get people in so then they create this onboarding program it's so their business practices are really strange to me i can't figure it out Sorry to bore everybody. Yeah. <laughs> with, uh, actually, it, it's probably not boring to everybody because maybe it gives you some insight as to why a lot of channels that you follow on Twitch uh, are getting like this massive influx of followers yeah. and why some streamers such as myself uh, may choose to, you know, kind of like not regard every single follow. Like some nights it's crazier than others. Like when I'm streaming and I'm getting 200 plus follows in one night, yeah. Mm. I mean, that's just kind of... A I mean, little it, overboard. It, it probably depends a lot on the game you stream, I'm sure, like you were saying, because yep. you know, when you did the Elder Scrolls online, you know, it's kind of a current top title, so that's something that would be more apparent to show up on this onboarding program and, um, than if yep. you were streaming, yep. you know, Tiger R Zone. Because <laughs> anybody that says that they like card games are probably gonna get recommended correct Elder Scrolls. So I mean, I don't and know to if be you honest, don't do the numbers enough or if you saw like the number of those followers I mean your Elder Scrolls streams are strange in general just because you're getting a lot of followers because people are coming in to like take advantage of this drop system as well. But then the yeah, fact we that won't even get into game. that. Yeah, yeah, the drop system is a whole nother monster. <laughs> yeah, when I, I mean, here, to be honest, I'm so against these like fake padding. Every time I stream Elder Scrolls, I just feel like making a second account. I honestly don't care if I have like five viewers. If it's five viewers that are there to watch Elder mm-hmm. Scrolls and are actually there, I'm completely okay with that. But if it's like, if it's just gonna, and I don't want the followers. I don't want. Elder Scrolls Legends recommended people following my Pete's Game Room channel. Like, it's just weird. Because they're not going to want to watch me play <laughs> Tiger R-Zone, okay? They're there to maybe watch Elder Scrolls. Or possibly... I don't know. It's just, like, like another... <laughs> and I hate to hinge upon this one more time, but just to reiterate, and we'll end on this, but when I've been streaming for so damn long... I've been streaming since 2009... And I work so hard for every single follower that I earned. And yes, of course, a large majority of them are dead because someone that followed in 2009 is likely still not watching my channel in 2017. (laughs) But I just feel still like every one of those numbers meant so much because everyone was someone manually clicking Mm -hmm. in my channel to follow. And now it's just like it feels so much less satisfying yeah and think about it how it feels for someone like myself right pete who's like was just starting out was trying to build something and now it's like i can't even look at these numbers at all like for you the numbers don't even matter yeah Yeah, you must have fun looking at the chart and you like see the the little line chart going up and up every night for how many people have been following and now it's just like doesn't even matter yeah i mean it's like i got to a thousand this past weekend and i'm i'm thinking to myself that number should really in all honesty be around 600 and so it's like these 400 i don't even know what to think about in my head and it's 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 really sucks so if twitch is listening it's garbage 
Well, hopefully the listeners got some insight into what it's like to to stream on no. Twitch lately with this new onboarding system. But you were saying, but what you're saying, I mean, I think it is important because, like, you know, we obviously go and hang out with a bunch of other streamers and other you know channels, and a lot of them did not know. Still, like, even it's been almost a month. It's I so guess. sad. Yeah, it's sad when they think it's a real follower yeah. and it's someone that's not even in their channel. I think it's kind of messed up in a way. It is absolutely agree. I think I think the follow when it comes through. Here's what needs to be done because we use third party programs that mm-hmm. called Streamlabs that you know run our alerts. When you see a name pop up on someone's stream and it says, "Oh, so and so followed the channel," that's not Twitch. That's like a third party Streamlabs program which is affiliated with Twitch, but it's not Twitch itself. They need to get on the ball ball or something so that we can filter out onboarding follows so we can uncheck a box that says do not allow onboarding follows to show on my stream yeah everyone on reddit now for the twitch subreddit they now realize because i looked at my post that first day i posted everyone thought i was crazy now as people have figured it out over the last month there's more and more posts every day where people are figuring out what it is and then complaining about it apparently there is supposed to be some api command to differentiate between them now, why hasn't there been a tool yet to separate? Or maybe there is, and I haven't found it yet. But that's like the very first thing that needs to happen now in lieu of this, you know, garbage. Anyway, sorry to turn this into a Twitch, <laughs> Twitch <podcast>. rant. <laughs> Twitch rant. That's what you guys but, tuned uh, in since for. Since right? we are, since we are both Twitch streamers, you know, sometimes you're going to hear the latest Twitch drama. Um, but it can be hopefully maybe a little insightful into stuff that normally we can't talk about. Like, there's no way in hell that we can talk about something like this in this length while we're streaming a game and no. answering other questions about games. So sometimes, you know, we got to vent a little and we're going to do it. On <laughs> we're getting the information out to the people. That's what's important. <laughs> yeah. So the next time you see Bovine or myself get a follow from someone called like 0167754 and we don't say a goddamn thing, you know why. Okay. <laughs> Although if you see X, big X, little X, Pete Dorb, little X, big X, little, that might be okay. So just keep an eye out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the first topic about video games that we're going to get into for this. Uh, It's actually a question that we got from Sergeant Pepper regarding, he wanted to know about memories that we've had with handheld games because he he really enjoyed kind of our discussion about handheld games from the previous episode. And he just wanted us to elaborate a little bit more. And that, this goes for anybody, if you ever hear us talk about or mention or bring up anything on one of the podcasts and you want us to elaborate more, please let us know and we'll do so. So... Bovan, why don't you start? What what's kind of your history going way back in the day with your memories of handheld? God, I mean this this topic is really near and dear to my heart because I mean everyone knows I've talked about it at length. I mean I love my handhelds. I've loved every handheld I've ever personally owned. The entire the entire history of con- consoles that are on the handheld side or that exist on the handheld side. Like this is what really burns me. Like we have these conversations a lot, and you know we'll talk about greatest consoles of all time systems. And most people, they will not consider handhelds consoles. And whenever I hear that, it drives me up the wall. I can't, I can't deal with that. Like any time I hear that, I have to stop whatever I'm doing and start defending consoles. Because you know, talking about the earliest consoles, like for me in my history with consoles, I've always thought that the idea of having a handheld console system was basically akin to you having your own personal video game room in your hand, right? Because Growing up as a kid, you know, I grew up with two sisters and a brother. So it's four kids in the room, and, you know, it's not like everyone had their own video game console. So whenever there was a video game console in the house, whether it be an Atari and Nintendo, you had to share it, right? 
invariably that becomes part of like the family structure like okay one night you play or you play for an hour you hand it off your brother or your sister now the handheld you introduce the handheld and for my for me my first handheld console and and real console i'll say would be of course be the game boy system and you know we can talk a little bit about handheld systems that existed in forms before that it's kind of like a different topic such as like game and watch handhelds tiger lcds but to focus specifically on the very first console that was a handheld for me would be the game boy system and to have purchased and have your own game boy at that time for me it meant no more sharing time right this was something that i could just play wherever i was in the house in the privacy of the garage and my you know the living room while someone else was watching tv maybe my parents were watching tv maybe my sister was playing the nes i could just escape somewhere anywhere in the house sit down in the hallway sit down in the you know garage turn on the game boy and there i was playing video games the way i'm meant to be doing right in front of the console so all of the handhelds to me they mean so much because it encompasses like that sense of what is it it's the sense of being able to do what i wanted to do the most as a kid anywhere i wanted to do without any restrictions outside of battery life of course but you know for me that's why handhelds have always held such a special place in my heart because it was always a way to escape from like the confines of your rigged console that was set up to the family tv right it was a console that existed in its own space in my own personal space that i could always have with me at any given time to do what i loved which was to play video games so i mean i don't know if it was the same kind of attachment for you pete like how is how completely different because i was an only child so (laughs) all the video games were for me they're all Uh, yours it's it's interesting though because my my first handheld was actually now I, I'm so bad. One of the one of the worst things that it comes down to for me is like when it comes to years and releases for consoles and whatnot. So I can't remember exactly which one came first, but it was probably my Nomad before my Game Boy Color. Mm-hmm. Um, but those were like my first two earliest handhelds. I actually didn't own the original Game Boy for quite a while. I was very jealous of my best friend at the time who did have one. Um, but at the same time, I had a freaking nomad, all right? So sit the <laughs> hell down, all right? I'll take my nomad. You can take that little rinky-dink Game Boy. That's right? 90% I'll... of the listeners, they cannot relate right now since they never got their hands on a nomad. You know that, right? It is true. It is true. <laughs> so if, if you don't know what a nomad is, and there probably are many people that don't know, uh, the nomad was a, a portable Sega Genesis, okay? Pretty much, if you had to translate what nomad meant, it meant that you were the baddest ass kid in school, all right? <laughs> Because it looked incredible. I mean, it was like you had a portable television with one-for-one Genesis. Not even emulation. Like, real hardware games running on a freaking handheld. Yeah, it was very bulky. It was not easy to travel with. Um, Long car rides. You know, it was was rough. And it had two-player functionality, too. You can plug a Genesis controller into this thing and then play two players, which I had done. Um, was it easy? Absolutely not. But it was doable. Um, problem with the Nomad, though, was the battery life was abysmal. If you were using batteries, you had to buy a battery pack, which are now actually really rare and hard to find for whatever reason, and you exactly. had to pump like six AA's into that thing. <laughs> and then maybe you were lucky if you got like two hours out of it. So all you people complaining about your, your Switch battery life, psh, you got nothing on the Nomad. But it was worth it. <laughs> But it's crazy um, to hear people complain about, like, the bulk and the weight and the battery. I mean, I know it's obviously those were the big factors. But, like, thinking back then, like, owning my Game Boy, like, 
for having the Game Boy come out first and being the first one I owned, I mean, if you think about the size, the portability, the battery life you got out of the thing, I mean, granted, it was four double A's, which wasn't completely breaking the bank on the battery side, but everything else about it was a very good compromise to playing, you know, portable black and white versions of popular Nintendo games that you had at home. Like, I really think that, and, you know, this is why Nintendo has obviously been ruling the roost on the handheld side for so long in video game histories because if you look at the success of what they designed with the very first Game Boy, what was important to them? You know, they sacrificed backlighting, they sacrificed color for what? Portability and power. And those were the things that obviously drew, you know, that Game Boy, the first Game Boy, to the success that it reached, you know, in selling like 120 million units or whatever crazy number it is. And, you know, everything about that system. And even though the Game Boy was my first system, that was the first one I purchased and was able to use and own as a kid, you know, it quickly made me fall in love with any type of handheld console that would appear thereafter. And it just, I did my best to get every single one of them. You know, I immediately went through the Game Gear and the links afterwards. And just to have, like, those portable powerhouses. Like, now it's like, okay, yes, there's a sacrifice in battery life, but look at these amazing colors. It's backlit screens. This is where, like, I don't know what it is. It's like portable gaming for me has always been something that I place right alongside the console experience. You know, it's a different way to experience games, but the experience to me is completely unique and stands alone, and it stands right up there alongside, you know, the consoles, the the at-home consoles. Like, some people like to look at the handhelds and say that they're lesser systems, like, less sophisticated, and, you know, just things that you you have onto the side for me i treated every single one of them as if it was a standalone console and you know it's it's kind of proven by their game libraries a lot of the game libraries for each of the handhelds they're unique they're exclusive not just straight you know dumbed down ports or anything like that so i don't know for people who talk crap on handhelds i'll be there to defend them down to the my very last breath i just we're 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 gonna bovine is indirectly targeting me with this right now. this is a discussion we're gonna have in the next episode by the way once he gets this mystery console that yes, he's been talking that no it's actually it's not that i'm actually not calling it a console but i think mm-hmm. it's going to be a very good discussion as to what actually constitutes a video game console we're not going to get into it any bit more but we're, we're going to bring up this subject again in the next episode so you can look forward to us arguing back and forth as to what determines something being an actual video game console but it is strange it is funny though pete how you mentioned how you know being an only child like the the value or the draw the handle for you like for you having the nomad first like what was it to you was it just a way to take hey i'm just taking everything i play at home and if i go on a car ride or go to someone else's house i can just continue my genesis experience which i want to correct myself by the way when i said game boy color i meant game boy pocket i actually didn't get the original game boy my first game boy was a game boy pocket ice Mm. blue limited edition Uh by the way (laughs) everyone's sexiest game boy pocket ever Yes, exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's what turned me into a collector. The, the moment I got the limited edition Ice Blue, I knew that in there. limited colors. They'll do it every time. Yep. Um, but no, like back then, form and portability and size and battery life, those were not things we even thought about, or at least I didn't. I didn't care how big that thing was. Mm-hmm. The fact that I can take video games outside my home, bring it to a friend's house, a family member's house, in the car... That's all I cared about. I didn't care how big that damn thing was. Mm-hmm. I didn't care how long the battery life was. If I can get 30 minutes of that thing outside of my house, portable, I was happy. Pure I heaven. wasn't thinking about battery life. I wasn't thinking about how ridiculous I look carrying the thing around. <laughs> These days, everybody cares about form and function because mm-hmm. things get smaller and smaller and anything that's larger you know, is looked down upon. Screw um, those people. I walk around proudly with my links at work right now. <laughs> <laughs> Do, do people 
Do people ever ask, like, what the hell are you doing? My God, all the time. I mean, and, you know, obviously it's from people that they think I'm working on, like, some new device or it's some, like, crazy new piece of technology that requires, like, insane amount of patterns. I mean, no, it was a handheld device from 1989, just playing my games. (laughs) And now what you got to do, Bovine, is you got to whip out the Game Boy and the Game Gear, put them side by side with the Lynx and show them why you're choosing the Lynx (laughs) over everything else. I've been trying to do that. Trust me, I'm I'm leading the charge here to try to convince everyone on the planet that they need to have a Lynx and to play it, so. It's going to be a long road, I think, but I'm making inroads. <laughs> but when it comes to the Game Boy for me, um, I got that, you know, when I was in, Jesus, I don't even know when, but it was like before middle school, uh, back when the Pokemon craze was, you know, in full force when it first came out in the U.S. And I remember Game Boys were getting banned in my school at the time because everybody was just playing them nonstop. I mean, they banned Game Boys in lunch, Okay. That's how bad it was. They actually didn't allow us to use our Game Boys during lunchtime. And me being me, I didn't give a shit. I still needed to play my Pokemon during lunch. (laughs) So the lunch lady comes over. She takes my limited edition Ice Blue Game Boy Pocket with my copy of Pokemon Red. She puts it on the lunch table. She takes it away because I'm not supposed to be playing it. Mm. She doesn't pay attention to my limited edition Ice Blue Game Boy Pocket. (laughs) Someone steals it. Um, I go to the school and I'm like, they try and argue that, oh, you weren't supposed to have it anyway. I'm like, no, your lunch lady was supposed <laughs> to look after this thing. She wasn't. Someone stole it. So they had to reimburse me. I wanted my money back. So I got my money back for the game. And Did the you game really get the money And I back? used that money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. They, they reimbursed me for it. Oh, my God. So I used that money. I forget how much it was. It was maybe like 100 bucks or mm-hmm. so. Whatever a Game Boy Color costed at the time, it was when the Game Boy Color first came out. Uh, I took that money, pretty much launch period of Game Boy Color. I went to get my Atomic Clear Purple Game Boy Color because that was the only one that was available at the time. (laughs) It was the only goddamn one that was available, and I have no regrets. The purple (laughs) one was awesome. Uh, And then I went to go get my copy of Pokemon, but it was still in its you know prime, and they were sold out at KB Toys. So what did I have to do? I had to pick one game out. I chose A Bug's Life for Game Boy Color. <laughs> I hadn't even seen the movie, but it was one of the only Game Boy Color games they had for sale. Probably one of the biggest regrets I've ever had because that game was freaking horrible. I've still... I never beat the first level. I got stuck. You know, I actually mean... I've been meaning to stream that game for so long so I can revisit that first level and see if I can finally get past it because I, for the life of me, thought that game was broken. It there was a certain terrible. jump I couldn't do. I just could not get over this one wall. So maybe I was uh, just missing something. And it's so funny. I didn't even think about how, like, obviously there's there's you know age and generational gap for you and I. So you were in the middle of the Pokemon craze. Whereas for me, you know, I was already way. I was a handheld. You know, I was a handheld. You know veteran by the time the pokemon stuff came out and that was what really kind of drove the growth of the game boy systems and everything and i I completely bypassed that i mean to this day i've yet to even play like a standard pokemon you know game at this point i still haven't done it and one of the things at this point the new ones honestly um here's the thing in my opinion you either need to play the very first pokemon or the Mm -hmm. latest pokemon playing any of the in-betweens i mean maybe you can get away with the original pokemon gold and silvers Mm. it's really it's really hard and i'd be curious to hear what a what a hardcore pokemon fan has to say in terms of what they would recommend Mm. but i think oh man i've been asking that too in chat and a lot of them have been recommending the first ones that came out for the ds which i think were what 
black and white? No, no, don't no. listen to the chat. No. They're wrong. <laughs> you either want to play Sun or Moon, which are the new 3DS ones, because they're amazing. They're such a great introduction to the series. Um, or just play the goddamn originals, which in that case I would recommend Leaf Green or uh, Fire Red on the Game Boy Advance because they're kind of nice remakes. Ah, so oh, there are remakes of the original old school. Ones, then. Right, that, oh, those okay. are. I don't know. There's something about the charm of that original blocky, all you know, text, very you know, blue and white, blue and red original music. Yeah. yeah. So I think, from my own perspective, I'll have to try the original version just just to get some perspective before moving on to the new ones. But if you're but gonna yeah. do it, play mm-hmm. Pokemon Yellow because then you get Pikachu following you around. So. Oh, is that right? <laughs> Does he make an annoying sound effect every time I walk or something? So no, no, he'll just. Well, here's the thing: to get Pikachu early on in the original Red and Blue, mm-hmm. you had to catch him in, I believe it was Viridian Forest, and he had a very, very small chance to appear. I mean, I used to hunt him for like two hours, <laughs> and for the small chance that he would appear in that goddamn forest. But in Pokemon Yellow, you just start with him right away, just like the television show. It's so weird. And I so hope if you that, want Pikachu, there you go. Yeah, and I hope that playing through that, I mean, whatever that magic is for those games, because it just amazes me that that, I mean, the entire series, how much of an impact it has for like entire generations of video gamers. And I, I have like no clue about it at all. I have no sense about it. I don't have any type of connection to it. And I wonder if playing them now, you know, with hope, no, my I don't think it'll be the same. Yeah, I just hope that as I'm more open minded now to kind of. Get, you know, take myself back to those times and compare games that I play now to the contemporaries at that time that, you know, Pokemon's going to have some type of an effect on me. Because as it is, like I said, the only Pokemon game I've ever played is Pokemon Snap, which is not a regular Pokemon game, obviously. So See, it, usually it's easy for me to kind of like, that's the one thing I love doing is kind of putting myself in the time and putting myself in the right mindset and perspective. So if I do play a game that, um, you know, is say Spyro the Dragon, for example, right? Like I never played Spyro outside of a demo when that game came out and I just played it for the first time within the past year. So I had to put myself in the mindset of playing that on the PlayStation back in whatever, what, 1997, whatever the hell year that game released. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Pokemon, I feel like that's really a series, especially when it comes to the originals that you had to experience in that right generation when you were, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. And if you miss that boat, I feel like it's that kind of series that as hard as you may try to understand what made it so great if you played the originals today i don't think you can really match it i think you need that young child minds to really appreciate how mind-blowing those games were i think you need the link cables and i think you need the face-to-face interactions of trading with friends or comparing pokemon or you know not having access to the internet and how to defeat the elite four at the end of the game you know stuff like that is just lost in today's internet age yeah so i mean when i hear you talk about that so, i get the yeah good feeling, luck getting into that yeah i have the feeling that pokemon will be one of those things because you don't have all the ancillary like you know, exterior experiences that went along with that game and the impact it had. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I, in, in a way, I feel the same way. Like, it's not going to... I'm not going to be able to capture like a hundredth of what the experience was. But, you know, give it a shot and see what happens. Hopefully you like it. Maybe if you ever delve into that uh, somewhat intimidating task because the Pokemon games are quite massive. I think if the one thing that you can appreciate today if you were to revisit the original Pokemon games for the first time today is you'll at least have an appreciation for how crazy in-depth and content-packed those games were for their time. And I think that's what made them so memorable because, you know, think about... Don't forget about the Game Boy 2. Think of it this way, right? Original Game Boy games. 
over a thousand games or just 800 what is it like seven 800 plus games that were released for that console Mm -hmm. when you're a kid right you're lucky you get maybe a game or two for christmas birthday you know you save up allowance maybe you get like five or six games a year i don't know whatever the average would be for what games you got for that year so maybe you were one of the lucky kids maybe you got kirby maybe you got mario land tetris you know the, the typicals but what if you were one of those kids where you ended up with like god i don't know what are the lowest of the low game boy games that you can freaking end up with i, I don't was even almost know. gonna say like kicks, just some real trash fun, so. <laughs> Like, just imagine if you were one of those kids where your parents always got you the worst games and then suddenly <laughs> you got Pokemon. It was mind-blowing. So today we're kind of spoiled because we know a lot of the great Game Boy games. We know a lot of the cool Pokemon knockoffs and all this stuff. But to experience that for the first time, kind of a magical thing. You know, I hate I don't want to toss around that magical word too much yeah, for I mean, games, but seems that is fit. one series that it fits. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I agree with you, and I, I kind of, I'm, I'm gonna long for having missed that, but you know, it's kind of my own thing. And again, I think based on the age that I was at that time, maybe it was something I was never meant to experience, anyways, right? Like, because there wasn't a Pokemon style game when I was around that seven, eight, nine age. So we'll see. And I think too with Pokemon back then, I don't think there were many people playing Pokemon that weren't in that age category. Yeah. You know, today it's cool because oh, everybody grew up with it, so it's it's fine if you're 30, 40 years old you know, playing Pokemon. But back then, I don't recall anybody in like their 20s or 30s playing the original Pokemon, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah, that's why I say um, it's a like generational experience. Like that generation, that very specific one you're mentioning, like early 30s now, probably maybe to mid 30s, but more closely, I think around 30s right now. That would have been the generation that kind of had that maximum effect of the Pokemon effect. And, you know, I kind of feel, I, I feel sad that I wasn't part of that group, but... You know, every generation will have their own unique experiences, I guess. So I just got to remember what mine was. <laughs> and that's why when the Pokemon Go craze happens, which is a whole other thing that I'll never forget, that was such an amazing just phenomenon. It really was a phenomenon, um, Pokemon Go. That's why when I was doing the whole Pokemon Go thing, a lot of the people that were playing it were like my age. Same I'm age, like, yeah, right? Exactly. These are all... They were... Honestly, the the 20 to 30-year-old uh, kids, 20 to 30-year-old adults outnumbered the kids by like 10 to 1. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> younger kids that were playing Pokemon Go. So that should tell you something right Yeah, there. because well, you know, their kids, they're not going to have had that relative, you know, growing up experience of Pokemon. So it doesn't have as much impact. It may be fun for them for like that week or whatever. But then, you know, like kids these days, you just go into the next room. But for that I age have, group that grew up with it, definitely makes sense. I have to ask you. Hmm. Did you like experience any Pokemon Go? Like not even play it. I mean, no. like, did you see... No? the hordes oh, no. of people playing it actually you know what the funny thing was so when it hit and it was becoming like just it was just because it was like the white hot fireball of everything in the world for that month right that first month i was mm. actually vacationing in singapore and i didn't know what was happening but i mean because like zombies you know, you, on their phones <laughs> well no i mean yeah because you travel around to asia countries well any country now but even especially in asia you know every, you know people live their lives on their phones but what i was witnessing was just something entirely out of the ordinary like i just it took me a while to kind of pay attention to what's happening. And I was kind of like disconnected from the internet since I was on vacation. So I didn't, I wasn't even aware that there was this game that everyone's playing. But after a while I would just be walking in the mall in Singapore and I would look at everyone's, I would just glance at people's phones and it was always the same goddamn screen. It was this, you know, <laughs> like in the twilight zone. colors. And I'm like, what the hell is happening here? So I had to ask around and I finally, you know, I finally found out what the hell is going on. I'm like, are you kidding me? And it was, it was no joke. Like, 
I would say 90% of the people everywhere I went, they were playing that goddamn game. They were on their way to the same spots. Like the giddiness of watching like a 60-year-old woman on her phone like chase down this Pokemon and it was it was it was quite the experience. So, and to experience oh, it not knowing what the hell is going on in a different country, I thought it brought a <laughs> even better perspective to it. I mean, to be honest, that's one of the probably going to be the most one of the most memorable moments in my life. I know that sounds sad, but like experiencing <laughs> the Pokemon Go craze in its prime was just like otherworldly it really was you had to be there to understand it you also had to live in like the correct part of the world to kind of like be in those weird groups where the people kind of like congregated but it was just okay for example like i took a trip you know i just felt like well first of all pokemon go got me out like walking around my neighborhood just like out in the middle of the night <laughs> like for the first on time my like goddamn phone <laughs> walking yeah not even joking like since like Walk, like when do you ever walk around your neighborhood no you don't it wasn't even for exercise it was just to play pokemon goddamn go and sure i may only catch one pidgey or caterpie but i got something you know but it would make me like drive up to my local town which i never go to i've never walked that goddamn thing like ever just go up there and walk the streets have people like honking their horn like pokemon go it's like yep you know you know damn right when i'm playing yeah this of course i brought a friend with me you were like a pokemon go hunter <laughs> And then, like, you, you, you walk, like, these dark alleys and you find, like, this little alcove where there's a Pokestop and, like, just people are just, a gang of people just sitting there, like, looking at their phones, playing. I mean, it's just, like, no. And then I went up to another town that I hadn't been to in, like, 10 years. It was, like, the Twilight Zone. Like, <laughs> unbelievable how many people were there. Normally, this place, you're lucky if you see, like, two people walking down the street. Mm-hmm. But because this place was loaded with Pokestops, which it increased the catch rate and, you know, the finding is a Pokemon, mm-hmm. there had to be two to, like, one to two thousand people <laughs> in this little, like, port town by the water. But let me tell you, though, it was so beautiful because there was this area where there was, like, three or four Pokestops right next to one another. So mm-hmm. people are, like luring it so that they increase the drop rate and everything of pokemon yeah and it's right on the water and i remember just sitting there one day and like the sun was setting and there's just like a whole bunch of people just playing pokemon go i'm like my god we're never going to experience something like this again it was just so beautiful and then blastoise fucking blastoise spawned right (laughs) so everybody notices that blastoise spawned so he's really rare Uh i tell you i've never seen anything like this in my life (laughs) hundreds of people suddenly get up Everybody's sitting there all peaceful, right? Catching uh-huh. their Pidgeys and shit. They get up, start shouting Blastoise at the top of their lungs, and 30, 30 40 year old people, right? <laughs> running across the goddamn park That's into so... a street, a cross section, stopping traffic <laughs> so we can all huddle around for our chance, our 10 minute window to catch Blastoise. I didn't catch him. I tried. I tried all my great balls, my ultra balls, whatever the hell I had. I couldn't catch him. See, and when someone just... caught it, it was like an event. People were like, I got him! And everybody was like, oh my god, let me get mine. It just, it was it was unbelievable. I'll never forget it. See, if I'm listening to your story out of context, it sounds like Armageddon or the end of the world. Kind of a scenario. No, it's no joke. It was, here's here's one last, one last little story for Pokemon Go. My friends and I, we, we drive like an hour to go to a freaking park, all right? People that, when do you ever drive an hour to go to a park where this park is just a pond? with a trail around it that you just walk around for circles for, for, you know, for exercise. We drive all the way out. 
And then we get there, and there's probably like 200 people, and everybody's just walking around <laughs> in a circle around this pond. It's like a zombie, like <laughs> because there's a shit ton of Pokestops around this thing, right? And unfortunately, as even though it was a highlight for me for Pokemon Go, it was also the nail in the coffin because at the time my phone couldn't really handle it. Mm-hmm. So I was the only person in the goddamn park that couldn't play Pokemon Go. Everybody else is catching Pokemon. I'm walking with my friends. They're catching Pokemon. And I'm there because I couldn't connect to the game. It kept on disconnecting me, Mm -hmm. which I'm pretty sure was my phone's problem. I don't know. Maybe it was a security thing. I have no idea. But for whatever reason, I could not connect. And I was the only person out of hundreds of people, it seemed, that could not play that day. And that was probably the last time I gave a shit about Pokemon Go. I just didn't. You know, I couldn't upgrade my phone. I was going to say, I'm surprised you didn't like run it. out and buy, like, a super high-end phone just to continue I was playing. about to, but I've never really been a, a big phone person in the beginning. Yeah. So. Anyway, Pokemon Go is dead now. They dropped the ball on that shit. They never updated it. Like, they just, they really dropped the ball on Pokemon Go. I mean, Features that people cried for for so long just never came to be. Until, I mean, I, like, I, I, a year And later. I predicted it, you know, just based on who, what I was hearing about the people who were playing. Like, people I didn't know anything about or, you know, people in my family who never played video games. And they were talking about it nonstop, 24-7 on their Facebook feeds or social media. I said, you know what? This thing is going to burn itself out in, like, three to six months. And you know, sure enough, it's just, it can't sustain Not even that, that right? <laughs> they, had a, they had an opportunity. I mean, obviously, it's going to burn out after a while. But they had mm-hmm. an opportunity to really capitalize on it and keep it going strongly. But, um... I mean, if you were playing, you realize that they just didn't give a shit. They were just not updating it. Uh, but, man, did they have the potential. If they had Nintendo, like, if they had a team that was larger or just, like, more community-focused where they can talk to the community. Like, Niantic didn't even really speak to the public. They they didn't say, like, hey, we're working on this, we're working on that. They just, like, kept quiet. I guess they were in shock of the success of it. Yeah, and there must have been a large part of it. Because, I mean, from what I remember hearing, they took an existing game and basically skinned it with Pokemon, and then it just blew right. up, right? Yep, they did. Uh, what the hell was it? I don't remember the name. Nobody of it, even remembers they, what the original game was. It, same exact concept, and then you just reskinned it with Pokemon, right? So it was, a, it was a concept in a game that existed prior that no one... I mean, people gave a crap about it. It was somewhat popular, and they used actually all the data that people collected, hotspots and pictures for Pokemon Go. Yeah. I mean, anyway, sounds like a wasted opportunity, but maybe you know, maybe we're just waiting around for the next big thing to pop off like that. So, I'm sure it'll come, but I don't think anything will ever be as big as that. <laughs> yeah, it'll um, take. What What do you think it'll be though? Besides Pokemon, if something were to come around in the future, it to be that big of a phenomenon. What game series do you think it would have to be like Mario or something? I mean, I think it'll have to. To me, I think it'll have to be some mass market augmented reality application having to do with like future like in the future when everyone has an augmented reality headset or something that fits like glasses i mean i think the tech is going to have to be there to sustain something but on the software side like what could it be i mean it would have to be something very close to pocket i mean but what what even could it be today like what could there be an existing franchise or something that exists today that would you know would appeal to such a broad spectrum of um you know not only casual gamers hardcore gamers regular people who don't play games like it would have to be something like where you i don't know play like what would be something like maybe like you take a game like peggle and you can like play peggle by staring at like a scene in front of you like you're staring at a park Mm. bench with trees and you're playing peggle that's overlaid on top of that and using that as the boundaries something like that i think the time of peggle has come and gone no no i just use that as an example right (laughs) But like maybe no, you can take something like Candy Crush and overlay it with some real world elements. It's got to be something where like every idiot I'm thinking, out there will have the ability. I'm to thinking 
Nintendo. It has to be something Nintendo. Nobody else matters. I'm sorry, Sony and Microsoft, and but it has to be Nintendo, right? Take the most recognizable I'm thinking, characters. I'm thinking you just take like all exactly all the most recognizable Nintendo characters and somehow create some sort of augmented reality thing where like, oh, you're walking in the mall and oh, there's Mario peeking out from around the corner. You got to go chase him down. You know, oh, look, grab that that star there, and then oh, suddenly you're able to catch up to him faster or. You know, you know, it's crazy shit. Just like put Zelda in there, Mario, Kirby. Just I don't know. I don't know what kind of game it would be. I think it would have to be. But it would have to be Nintendo. For it would sure. have to be a combination of like a PVE and a PVP type of game. Like imagine this, like where everyone has an augmented reality method of, you know, overlaying real world stuff with some generated content. So if you imagine if you if everyone was to walk around and they could like scan people walking by and you're looking for I don't know you like a match <laughs> kind of creepy opponent. in a way. Well, yeah, I'm in a way. It's like or like think about like walking around in Metroid Prime and like scanning every goddamn thing and maybe you make the game something akin to like a treasure hunt or maybe it's a treasure hunt in combination with having to face off with someone else right who has whatever items you need maybe you turn it into like i won't say like a crafting game but like you're scanning could you imagine (laughs) good wait could you imagine right like this idea that you have with the scanning people Mm -hmm. imagine if it is like a pvp game where okay it's an app right get this where there's two teams let's just say red and blue and when you're getting scanned the app on your phone will like vibrate and say you're getting scanned yeah. and then you gotta like suddenly you're looking around right you're out in like a park and then you gotta look for what bastard is scanning you from the opposite team and if they get the full scan off right so it has to use your camera so you have mm-hmm. to figure out who it is that's scanning you and they're okay. trying to be super stealthy with it right <laughs> so you have to pick up your phone and then the camera you have to point it at the person and then it detects if that's the person or not and you have to like scan them back and then you get into like a scanning battle back and mm-hmm, forth yeah. to like resist them. And then their friend comes in to add in like an extra scan and suddenly it's so two versus the one. The speed of scanning increases the more people you get like to get Like territory wars. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But if you have if you have more powerful scanners in mm-hmm. your game, right, then you can fight back even harder because you've leveled them up. So suddenly you, you whip out like... Countermeasures. S- Scanazard or some <laughs> shit, right? Scanazard. And you, you fight back against the... You're just turning this into Pokemon. You know that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, but if they need to do it, they need to make it a Pokemon. No, but you know what I mean? Like, it has to be something where there's a competitive element to it, or maybe the the idea that you could have a massive cooperative element to it, too. Like like you were saying, like everyone is either one or side or the other. You're either red or blue, and it's kind of like up to you whether you want to assist your team or kind of like move forward and push yourself up higher, the hierarchy within your team. Like it's got to be something accessible, something that's not like too creepy. Like what you're describing about the scanning thing sounds cool. Like maybe you had to like creep up close (laughs) enough to the person to get a certain size scan or something something like that, like Metal Gear it around or something. Suddenly it's that 80-year-old grandma and you got to like <laughs> scan her with your phone to counter her. That would be really weird though. Like yeah, suddenly you got people pointing their phones at you. Yeah, there's definitely lawsuits a lawsuits waiting to happen, that. getting but punched in the face. Let's say you pair that down. You, you pair one thing away from it. Like, or maybe you even turn it into a PvE thing where in an augmented reality, you know, they can generate content that doesn't have to be overlaid on somebody. It could just be, you know, AI characters that show up and maybe people you know around you if they want to step in and help you and taking them down. Like it's got to be something... Where the rules are simple, there's a competitive element to it. Whether it's competitive against other players or competitive against like a global AI kind of thing, like that has to be the next thing that can draw people in, right? But what it is, what exactly it is, what franchise you use, that's obviously a whole ball of wax that you and I cannot figure out right now. <laughs> we actually had a question. Oh yeah, did we answer is, this? Is a nice question. 
Actually, I was going to segment into. Uh, I think. Oh, I think we nailed the coffin with that. <laughs> the <laughs> the question. Sure. Somehow we were derailed into scanning phone apps, and <laughs> but I was actually going to segment into a question that we got from Oh, it's useless because it's actually kind of related to what we're talking about now, mm. where we're kind of brainstorming games. And he asks, uh, if you could develop your own personal game, what genre would it be, and what retro system? So that's from Oh, it's useless. That is his name. Oh, so Bovine, I know you had a specific idea in mind. What what kind of game would you make and what would it be? I mean, the funny thing is, and I think I think if I look around, I think someone may have already made this game, unfortunately, but my idea for the longest time when I was sitting around, like, I don't know, 10 years ago when I was in the middle of computer programming classes, like I was thinking to myself, you know, obviously I'm doing this because I want to build or make games or be involved in game creation at some point down the line. So I thought to myself, well, you know, that none of that happens until you have an idea. And what's an idea that has to be unique that, you know, is not like a standard shooter, platformer, RPG fighting game. And I always thought to myself, one of the coolest things I thought is that you have a game that's essentially, you know, it's like it's a game where you can basically move around between different generations of games in the way they were programmed. So basically it's a game where you can jump around from an 8-bit level to a 16-bit level to a 32-bit level to a 128-bit level, whether it be like taking a pixel character and having him exist in a full 3D rendered environment. Like if you were to take the Gradius ship and then have it, you know, maneuver around in a, in a Gears of War level or, you know, going backwards, you can take, you know, a character from a current game, like a Call of Duty soldier from first person view, but having him exist in like an 8-bit, you know, Mario platformer. But I almost positive there are a couple games like that already. So it's not like completely innovative, but I swear I had the idea before all those games started showing up, (laughs) but it was some type of thing where you could exist, you know, and you can freely move around as you were gaining assets. So you can, you you can acquire assets or characters or players and they would be like an 8-bit mario sprite or a 16-bit street fighter sprite or a full-fledged 128 you know fully 3d rendered model from you know some current game and then you can just basically figure out how to progress and move forward in these puzzles by swapping out characters and levels so like let me let me take the 16-bit character and put him in the 8-bit world or take this atari sprite and have it try to figure out how to get through a puzzle in this 32-bit 3d world so i was always thinking that Nintendo is biting off your idea with Mario Odyssey, right? You see that? Did you see the gameplay where they have like 8 bit Mario and they actually have him like traversing? Like they actually put the 8 bit uh, Mario stuff into the the 3D game world where he's like part of the structures, like in the walls Mm -hmm. doing the platforming. Crazy innovative stuff, but yeah, even Nintendo is biting off your idea. Yeah, I know. And like I said, I knew at that time, I said, I better do something now because this is something that obviously everyone can think about, you know, down So it's almost like it was one of those things where you had to be out first. And I'm sure there's some indie games out there that have taken parts of that component. I'm, I'm of the sure there are many. Yeah, so, but that would, that would, that was kind of like my dream game back then. Just something that would combine different generations of, you know, video games that we're all familiar with and have it, have it. And it be integrated in some you know competent way that apparently I'm not able to explain in full force right now. So, what I about think you? your answer? You... Your answer is way more cool than mine, I guess. <laughs> Typically, when I get an a question like this, I I don't know. I just think like, what kind of game would I most like want to play myself? And mm-hmm. I always just default back to a mascot 3D platformer. And I know that Bovine just like squirmed in his seat at the mention <laughs> of a mascot 3D platformer collectathon game. But that is that is what I would make because why there's just not enough of the goddamn things. And lately some of the ones that have been coming out just don't quench my thirst. So if I had the skills 
to develop my own game, it would be some form of a 3D platformer where the main character was some sort of anthropomorphic animal-like mascot, because I think we we lack animal mascots these Mm -hmm. days. And none of this half-assed, like, like, (laughs) no free-roaming camera bullshit. Like, I'm talking 3D open world, Jack and Daxter, no loading screen style platformer would there be some unique kick to the game like some like no defining no element? no that's that's no. part no <laughs> generic as generic can get jumping double jumping maybe a spin now of course a spin attack yep uh, perhaps a roll weapons um, none of this time warping garbage <laughs> weapons get that shit out of here we got the spin attack all right maybe a weapon but no guns no, no guns. guns okay maybe like yeah. a slingshot or something <laughs> Uh, as long as you can't go into first person to solve puzzles as long as it's only used for combat no crazy puzzles alright and the world the first world has to start in a lush green forest type area if it starts if it starts in some kind of mechanical bullshit Mm it's gonna work alright we need lush green forest with the sun lots of sky hype we need we need the sky to be at least three different colors no, but you no, no blue level. and clouds. No, but you have to start the level a couple hours before sunset, right? So everyone knows that there's a sky, but they don't know how awesome it's going to be when the sun sets later in the level. So it comes up slowly and changes the entire vista of the level as you play through it. The sunset also has to happen while you're on the highest possible point <laughs> of the entire game, like on go. that one cliff where you you work two hours to get up there. Now this is this platformer is turning into like Skyrim levels, right? <laughs> Actually, you know what? The closest thing to that is Breath of the Wild. There you go. Right? I mean, that's pretty much the game I'm describing, except it's not really a platformer. <laughs> but just imagine Breath of the Wild. Take out all the weapons and all the puzzles and dungeons and just throw in, like, oh, I don't know, Bubsy in that shit. <laughs> that is my ideal game. Right You're now. describing the next Bubsy game now, I think. <laughs> Actually, doesn't that game come out really soon? Pa- apparently, Bubsy? before this year's over, right? So. Christ, I think it comes out in, like, um, wasn't it? I thought it was September. Uh, no, October, right? No, no, I think it's sooner than that, is unless really? they delayed it. Ugh. What really scares me, though, is I don't think we've been shown any new gameplay outside of the initial, like, 30-second trailer, which is really scary. Hopefully that means they'll just delay it to work on it, right? Not just shove it out the uh, door. It's a Bubsy game. Uh, you never know. If they delay it, it may never come out. That's they the may just shove it out unfinished. Yeah, yeah I don't know. But that, that proves to everyone out there, the games that we're trying to think of, Pete, myself, it just tells you every game that ever existed has already been made. There's no more new ideas, people. Everyone go home and play your retro games. <laughs> Which leads into another one of the questions. Artsy fartsy. Oh, Pete, sorry. Hold on. You cut so This up. one comes from Jonathan B. Um, this is actually a dilemma that we had, by the way. When it comes to sending us an email to the show, which you can do so, by the way, if you have any questions you want us to read on the show like we are doing now, you can send them to retrogameexplorers at gmail.com. Um, that is the one guaranteed way that we will definitely get your question and potentially get around to it um if you send us an email and you don't want us to read your name please specify or at least provide some sort of handle that is not your full name in the case of a full name we're just going to read your first name and your last initial unless you specify another name otherwise so jonathan b sends us uh he says the last guardian is one of our favorite games of all time referring to both bovan and he agrees, but he's heard arguments that regard to the game as nothing more than quote-unquote an emotional concept, and that the actual gaming aspects are almost non-existent. 
So people are apparently saying that The Last Guardian is pretty much not a game, but rather who? just who is saying for emotion. This? I'm going to fight them. I would love to read an article about And then he said, this had me thinking. Have there been any games that cross that artsy-fartsy line for you? And what would you say in defense of The Last Guardian or other artistic games that you love? Hmm. Well, here's the thing with The Last Guardian, and this is a point, this is not an, an original thought of my own. I have heard this before, and I do completely agree with it. I think The Last Guardian, unfortunately, you know, was... It released at the wrong time. It came out too late. I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous because we know that The Last Guardian was in development for so long, but you have to remember, if The Last Guardian had released when it was initially due to release in, what, like 2010 or something on the PS3, that was before games like Journey hit, uh, Gone Home, all these indie games like To the Moon, all these really emotionally driven games that came out where we sort of got spoiled with all these very sad and sappy and, oh, I'm growing attached to these characters, and then, well, let's not go there, but, you know, those kind of games. Last Guardian kind of came out a little too late, I feel, when it comes to filling that void of emotional games, and I do think emotional games is a thing. I don't think it's wrong to call Last Guardian an quote-unquote emotional game, because it does evoke emotion, because, first of all, the music drives in certain feelings like they it evokes sadness it evokes freedom like it 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 makes you feel emotions okay i can definitely identify to this because i cried quite heavily when the freaking title of the game popped up in the first 10 seconds of the Mm. goddamn game you know like i was crying because i had waited so long for this game so even in that way the last guardian is emotional for me on another level of course than what you would normally think for that game. Um, I cried at certain scenes in that game because I thought the story was really well told. I mean, is the emotion from The Last Guardian forced? I don't think so. I think it's just a style of storytelling that others try to emulate, but they can't quite nail what Fumito Ueda does with his games because the stories in Last Guardian are told in such a minimal way, but it's it's such an elegant way that I feel others try to emulate and they don't quite capture. Like Rhyme, for example. Not to slam on Rhyme, I actually love the game. But the whole time I was playing it, which was a new PS4, uh, Switch, I think Xbox One, right? Is that a console? I think it released on that. I can't remember. Um, And I just couldn't help but feel the whole time that this feels a little forced. So many people are trying to emulate the feeling that Eco and The Last Guardian and Shadow of the Colossus kind of Invented. I know it seems weird to say that they invented their own subgenre of games, but I think it's fair to say that, right? Like people say that about the Dark Souls, Demon Souls games, right? Where it's kind of become its own genre of imitators because that game did something so unique, uh, not just in its style but in its gameplay elements, that many countless others have since tried to emulate it. And I feel like the same is true for the Last Guardian, Eco, Shadow of the Colossus. I guess we'll call it the, you know. The, I don't know what you would even call it. The trilogy of... I don't oh, even know what tri- you would call it. The right? Oweda trilogy. They're not like... <laughs> oh, right. I mean, it feels weird to call it that, but they're, they are kind of its own trilogy, mm-hmm. even though they're not directly, you know, 
official they're they're linked it's really weird you it's like the cornetto trilogy of movies right they all exist they exist together but they don't really relate to one another that's the way i see those three games i kind of think of them the same way yeah i guess that's a good way of looking at it but i don't know like would you agree bovine that people are kind of becoming desensitized to these games that try to make you feel emotions because so many of them are trying they're trying too, too hard. hard whereas i feel like <clears throat> last guardian eco shadow of the colossus i know that not everybody agrees with all three of those but i feel like they just came so naturally that's just they weren't forced like it just came so natural and all these new indie games just feel so forced to try and emulate them you you know what i think the biggest problem with the last guardian was was the telltale series of games and they are completely unrelated games but a lot of what you've been saying pete and you know my love for The Last Guardian, it basically boils down, and listening to you talk about it, it just hammers home the point that the best single thing about The Last Guardian and when I played through it and why I, fe- why I count it as basically my favorite game of all time currently is because it's the perfect vehicle for telling a story without having to actually dictate a story to you directly. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like... And a lot of it you can talk about in a really flowery prose and talk about, oh, you know, you only get something. You you only can take what you want out of something. And then if it means more to you, that's when it means. So by effect, I'm saying that The Last Guardian meant a lot to me because I feel that a lot of the storytelling, the gameplay, everything about it spoke to me. Or it was drawing on elements that are very personal to me, very strong to me. So obviously I connect to it a lot more. But I think even above that, and the reason I bring up the Telltale games is because... The Telltale games were kind of very famous for bringing very big, emotional, impactful storyline to the casual gamer, or even bringing it to the masses, right? Like, there was obviously games that had deep storylines and had you thinking, but not in the concise way that I feel that the Telltale stories, especially like Walking Dead. And I feel that... I was going to say, Bovine is referencing like the Walking Dead... um... What what are the like Wolf Among Us? Yeah, Wolf but Wolf. specifically like, Walking Dead. For yeah, the most and those part. series of games from Telltale, right? They basically focus on getting emotional impacts, emotional impactful moments out of the viewer player, right? That's what those games are built on. They're very strongly built on scripted, you know, sequences of events. Very structured. Yeah, very structured. And the thing about for me, if the Last Guardian had come out before the Telltale games. I think it would have been kind of like that last example of a game, again, that tells you a complete story from start to finish with very big emotional impact and connection with the characters without having a single line of storyline being driven home and told to you or dictated out to you directly. And to me, I think that's what makes it such a beautiful game. It's because if you were to turn off every single line of dialogue, like, you know, there's some parts where, you know, the narrator speaking to you, there's some story elements that kind of get fed to you. But that's Which really I actually only... don't like. Yeah. I, they... I actually, those are my least favorite parts of that game. Yeah, they could have had that game exist without a single word or line of text. And it still would have been mm-hmm. the best experience of a game in the way that I played it. And I'm sure for you too. And I think for me, it's a very, like when I when you try to explain that to somebody, it's tough. Because like I said, it's going to go back now because of all these other game experiences that people are going to have different levels of expectations of what to expect from impactful storylines. And I feel that because people play these other games that you could argue have greater impact or, you know, more hard hitting events and moments that something like the last guardian operates on a smaller scale. And maybe it's not something that they're, you know, they expect more essentially what it comes down to, I think for a lot of people. So for me, 
it, that's why the last garden means so much to me again a lot of this a lot of the tones and the elements of the boy with helping this hurt animal and trying to bond with it despite you know not being able to communicate with it like a lot of these things speak to me personally from personal experiences and again if you don't have a lot of those things the game probably won't mean a lot to you so obviously i'm kind of biased in that way but even on top of that everything i'm trying to say regarding storyline and comparison to other emotional games i feel that's what i think most people may be putting in a different bucket of a type of game because of these other games that have existed before and so like what you're saying Pete, if the game had come out earlier i believe it would have had greater impact especially if it had come out during the ps3 life you know life cycle and i think i because what was in quotations is he's saying that people are arguing that it's nothing more than an emotional concept i mean this is a video game it's a fully fleshed out video game you Absolutely. have full control over your character um, of course, Trico, you don't have 100% control over him, but at the same time... That was the point of the game. It makes you feel goddamn attached to him because yes. you don't have full control over him. If you had full control over Trico, it would feel like a video game, okay? Yeah. It got to the point where, you know, because he felt like a real living, breathing animal, which I think they pulled off astonishingly well, I, I really felt for him. So, like, in moments in that game where, say, he's in peril or in trouble... I wasn't just thinking to myself, oh, all right, let me go help him because I got to go finish and move on to the next part. I'm like, no, you get the hell off my Trico. You know, I got to save his life. I got to help him out. I, fe- I felt like I felt like on the edge of my seat because I felt so attached to this thing in this game. Or even more so. Very few games I've ever done before. Or even more so, the inverse effect, right? Like when you were in trouble and he came to save you, like not with no word of communication or help, like he was, he knew that you were in trouble. And this animal, this creature that you're trying to bond with has realized that, hey, this companion that I'm with, they need my help. I'm going to go rescue. Like those moments, you can't artificially create those moments in these type of games. You can, I mean, you can do them, but how people connect to them is entirely how they relate to it. And I really think that's where the game's shown. I mean, despite any technical issues, frame rate issues, everything about the sequences of events that can happen in that game are what drove it home for me to become something way beyond the line of being an emotional experience experiment. I mean, it was to me, it was a real game that basically was able to include very impactful emotional scenes that really hit home for me, which, you know, automatically makes it one of my favorite games of all time because of that. He's pulled it off well. And I, I stand by my next opinion very strongly too, but I feel that one of the reasons why even some arguments such as this would even come up that people feel that Last Guardian is overrated, or it's just too artsy, or you know, it's not really a, a game. Is because it became too too mainstream. You know, it became a, a game of a joke almost, a too running gag, where it would make top ten lists of like, oh, top ten games that that'll you know, never come out, <laughs> never come out, or oh, there's that top ten list by game trailers talking about games that you know, or you know, just like it became a running joke essentially. Mm-hmm. The Last Guardian, and then it hyped the game up, hyped it up, and people must have been like, wow, people are still talking about this game 10 years later it's been in development for so long it's probably going to be one of the greatest games ever and then it comes along and then people play the last guardian it's not like i don't want people to play it i love people to play games like eco shadow the colossus and last guardian but i feel like if you're one of those people that never played eco you never played shadow the colossus and then you just come along and play last guardian out of the clear blue because you're like oh let's see what all the fuss is about i feel like those are the people that this game does not speak to. This game was made for a very specific audience, and had it came out in PS on PS3, it would have come out to almost little fanfare. Yes, Shadow of the Colossus was a big hit, um, but don't forget, these games are not called Eco 1, Eco 2, Eco 3, mm-hmm. Shadow of the Colossus 1, Shadow of the Colossus 2. These are games that are not really interconnected, so unless you're living in 
the video game world and you're up on your game titles, you may have no idea that The Last Guardian is connected to Shadow of the Colossus. So, I don't know, I just feel like all the exposure that The Last Guardian got was kind of to its detriment. I mean, there were some people that played that game that I never expected would even touch The Last Guardian. And they played it, and they maybe weren't the biggest fan. And I'm like, you know what? That's because it's not a game for you. Yep. Unfortunately, I mean, this was made for a very specific audience of people. I mean, I've been the I've been of the opinion that if you were someone that did not grow up with like cats or dogs as you, having pets or having like close and being close to animals, like I think that people who don't have that connection, like I think the game has a very little, ch- very low chance of connecting with that person. That's kind of like my my main thing that I tell people. It's like, hey, do you have animals or did you grow up with animals or were you close to your animals or pets growing up? I, I mean, mm-hmm. If they say yeah, yes, I, was, I think the game would go with them. I was a very, very animal-oriented kid when I was growing up. Yeah, And that's why, like, when people say, when people are like, oh, you know, Trico never listens. He doesn't do what I want him to. I'm like, that's fine by me. It yeah. makes him feel like a living, breathing animal. If I had the ability to just press a button and Trico jumps or does everything I do, I ride on his back and I gain... Con- control over him it would feel like a video game and so the to me like the biggest accomplishment of the last guardian was the fact that they made that trico thing feel like a real animal Mm -hmm. yes of course he still has certain things to his ai that weren't exactly 100 percent, but for the most part i would say they nailed it like 90 95 percent of the time not having direct control over him yes sometimes you have to fight with him to tell him to go a certain place and yes that might mess you up in certain puzzles of that game and it might you know, hamper your uh, your ability to advance the game in some cases. That was all part of the but process. It's all know? part of the process, yeah. you know? Yeah, Dealing like, with I when I call my cat, I don't expect that my cat to come. Maybe 20% of the time, he'll come over here. And that's exactly what Trico is like. Exactly. I said, you know what? They nailed it perfectly. <laughs> and, like, people, people will say that that's a counter-argument, right? They're like, oh, but you're just finding reasons to defend a broken broken programming or broken broken elements to the game and i would say i'd counter and say hell no i think that is intended you know i I really feel like it's intended where sometimes you need to fight for several minutes at a time to get trico to maybe jump up on a ledge or do something live and breathe it you know if it's not for you get the hell away from my last guardian yeah and the thing that go play your uh (laughs) your automated god of war quick time event games all right and the thing that fans the that flame fans the flames of that argument is that a way to like if you look at like interview material and how they talk about the development of the game, like there are lots of interviews you can point out where they did spend an inordinate amount of time on like AI routines and what they wanted the behavior to be. Although they have not straight up said, "Hey, we were trying to create an animal behavior where they listen to you sometimes and don't." Like if they would just say that, maybe that would end the argument. Because then people are lazy and they say, "Oh, they you're just like you're saying they're, you're defending." bad ai routines and i really to to your effect i don't believe that's the case at all i mean the game runs poorly for a reason it's because probably half the time they're dedicating it to ai routines and trying to randomly give you behavior that you can't predict one way or the other so but you know, what are you gonna do well, the game's not for everybody for no sure. no it's not and not to scare anybody away from playing the last guardian but i mean people always ask too should i play eco show the classes first I I say no, because I feel like if you play those two games, you might have higher expectations for The Last Guardian, and I think it's best to go into The Last Guardian without any expectations, even though that's really hard to do now, especially after hearing us talk about it as one of our favorite games ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think going into The Last Guardian knowing less is better. 
Yeah, and um, I think it's too late for that game to get that type of audience to give it a shot without preconceived notions, right? Because, like you said, of all the press and hype that it got, it's it's impossible for someone to go with an open mind. You know, it's human nature, especially because it's now known as an emotional game where people expect sadness, people expect surprises and twists, and people expect you know certain things to happen in that game. And I think going into the game expecting those things is definitely going to change your opinion on it. Yep, agreed. Just give it a shot, people. Give it a shot with an open mind. That's all we ask. Or, you know, play so the game. If you don't see, like let's, it, let's get try. the hell away. <laughs> <laughs> that, too. So, let's try and do another question or two. Mm-hmm. My God. We've been super long-winded on some of these questions tonight, <laughs> but it's good, right? I mean, this, is, this is the whole point, right? Get more, get your more in-depth answers in here. <laughs> you guys got some pretty good questions. Even not even a question. It's just like a single sentence in some cases um but let's see who do we want to elaborate on Bovan, why don't you pick one what's what's the next you want to do uh what do we have on here i think the next thing was we had a question from beater tech that was about um how we deal with translated roms we Mm. have something from laura for the two of us, we had Zipboy's question. We can about combine Re- a little bit of Beater Tech's question regarding translation ROMs, and then someone else was asking about repro cards. Zipboy, yeah, Zipboy. Okay, so we had a question from Zipboy113. He just wanted to know our question, our, our opinions on re- uh, reproduction games. And then Beater Tech, let me bring up his email. And he says, regarding your last conversation about emulators, would you ever consider using an emulator for patched English translated games? For example, police nuts, or would you rather use a hardware modified system that can play the modified copied CD patch, like a burnt ROM on a CD? So, just to clarify, what he means is, would we ever play a game that was never released in English, um, but had a fan translated patch, like someone translated the game, but it was not available in physical form whatsoever? Would we? be okay with playing that in an emulator with the translated patch or would we have to resort to playing that patch of the ROM burnt onto a CD or a cartridge depending on the system to then play it in the actual system or a modified system if need be Hmm. you want to take a shot at that first Pete? yeah I'll go first so (laughs) I would never play an emulated game um on a computer so it's really weird for me right i'm actually okay with playing a emulated or not emulated a patched rom as long as it's on a physical medium that is not created by me so as long as i am not and this is just me this is probably not a case for most people that share an opinion on this topic in terms of roms and, and patches and physical reproductions but i need a physical cart or physical CD and it cannot be created by me why because if it was created by me then that means that I had to get the emulator and I had to get the ROM and that opens up a whole can of worms that I am trying to avoid Mm -hmm. my best if that thing is created and handed to me or given to me or I buy it from somebody in a physical form I'm actually completely okay with that and that actually ties into the reproduction side from Zipboy I don't mind reproductions I don't care um I like reproductions. I think it's a great way to kind of get your hands on games that were actually never released uh, or never translated, and then you can play them on a a console. But it just all ties back to, just to reiterate why I'm not into emulation, very briefly, 
Um, I just don't want access to the world of emulation. It's just as simple as that. I, I know my personality and I, I just don't want the ability to play every game under the sun. So I feel that by restricting myself and just completely avoiding emulation, I'm okay with it. Um, kind of placing the boundary of needing it in physical form is a boundary that makes it a little bit more difficult for me to acquire every said game under the sun. And it also means that I'm just not playing it on my computer. Now, he also argues that... Not argues, but he also states that um, playing something on the Retron 5, even if you use a cartridge, is emulation, which I, I do know that. I actually don't mind it. I don't think I would play a game on a Retron 5 because it's just... It is emulation and the quality... Knowing that it's not on a real hardware and there may be certain emulation issues with certain games would kind of really bug me. Um, but as long as it's being played on a cartridge, I mean, it's it's okay by me. I don't know, Bovan, how do you feel about the whole translated patch thing, first of all? We'll, we'll start with the basics, you know, not on a cartridge. How do you feel about emulation just straight up on a PC? I mean, I... I mean, we've talked about this before, and I feel in general pretty much the same way that Pete does that you do. But, I mean, I will say that based on what's available and to what level you take it, I think there are certain limitations and boundaries that I have set upon myself. Like, for example, like a translated game. Here's the thing. Translated games, like if there's an RPG out there that is a, that is an RPG that I really would like to play one day, I mean, I don't mind playing a reproduction cart that has a translated ROM with it. Now... On top of that, there's the translation itself. Like, I, I tend to try to... I mean, I think these days, translations, they seem to be pretty top-notch. I mean, back in the day, like early emulation, there was a lot of issues where some translations were just very poorly done. So I think to a certain degree, I want to at least make sure and ensure that whatever translation is being used on whatever game I choose to play, I want to make sure it's very, you know, as true to the original material as it could have been. And, you know, but you can review people's translations and see what people recommend. There's only so much you can research before you just give it a shot yourself, and hopefully you don't miss anything that was mistranslated or something about the game that was different. So, in terms of translations, I mean, I, I mean, my my biggest point is that if, however way you can play the game, if at all possible, like I try to take the purest path first, right? Like obviously, original card, original system. Now, if that's not available, right? Maybe because there's a language barrier, then give me a repro card with the best translation to play on the original system. And if that's not available, you know, give me. I mean, how far, you know, there's there's barriers that I will knock down up to a certain point. But if I get down to the point where, okay, I can't get a repro cart, which means I can only play it on a ROM, right? And does that mean, can I burn the ROM onto an EEPROM myself, make my own repro cart, pay someone else to do it? I'll do, I'll take that route. If that's not available and the only way to play it is on an emulation station or on an emulator, I mean, if it's a game that I feel like it's something I need to play. If it's an experience that people say, this is a game, it's a once in a lifetime game, you must play it, it's the best kind of this game. I mean, if it's a game that I feel that I should play or I really want to play, I will get down to that level to say, I just want to be able to play the game and experience it. If there is in fact no way to get it at any of these levels that I described above, I mean, I want to get down to the point, and I've, I've always professed this to everyone, it's like, no matter how you can do it, try to get at least the ability to play the games, right? I always tell people, play the games. In the end, that's what it's all about, is playing the game. But for myself personally, I would try to attack at every single angle possible to get it as close to my goal, right? Before 
jumping down to those levels below. So, I just don't think I've found a game quite yet that is like you must play this before you die and it's not available in any other way like a, a game that you can only the only thing that I will have to play before I die and I don't think I'm ever going to get the chance to play it outside of emulation so on my deathbed all right, I think I've actually got this question before in chat on Twitch at one point they're like oh what's the game you'll play on your deathbed I feel like I need to play Sega Sonic the Hedgehog which is that arcade game that um, you use the trackball to play oh. where it has Ray the Squirrel <laughs> yeah so unless I ever, because the only way to play that game is with a trackball. You can't play that game with a controller. You can't play it with a keyboard. Mm-hmm. It's a Sonic the Hedgehog arcade game that, you know, just never really made it outside of the arcades. Unlike games like Sonic the Fighters and stuff like that where you can play it on a GameCube. So if I never get my hands on an actual arcade port of that Sega Sonic arcade game... Um, I don't even that's the thing how do you even do it you need to play it with a trackball right like how do you play the damn game without the trackball I mean, so like I need to get a decent trackball why did Japan <laughs> get a decent trackball and emulate it but to me MAME is a different thing because MAME MAME to me like I'm not going to have arcade machines in my home mm-hmm. or it's even just an not, arcade board not happening right? it's just I'm not at that level yet where I want to get into arcade collecting or just even like an arcade machine where I have a main machine. I just don't want to get there yet because it can be pricey, the maintenance and the upkeep. And I know once you get one, you're going to want more and that's just mm-hmm. going to get really dangerous. So to me, I don't use MAME yet. I tried it once because I needed the practice speedrunning Splatterhouse. And that's the one exception I will make that I haven't made for console games yet. And I probably will not make that because I'm stubborn. But I feel like if you're going to speedrun a game... Sometimes emulation is almost required. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially so I won't speedrun. Yeah. Yeah. I won't speedrun certain games because I know that in order to practice, I'll need to emulate and I just don't want to have to do that. So that also plays into a factor of what games I might speedrun is because it's like, does it require emulation to practice certain tricks and stuff? Yes. Okay. Rule that game out. Move yeah. on to another one. I mean, you know, it's like you're speedrunning under your own, you know, boundaries that you've set for yourself for general games, you know, playing games. So that totally makes sense. And, you know, I respect that completely the way you have these rules. But, man, for me, it's like I'll bend them a little bit more just to get to play a good game, right? If it's a decent game that will have no other option, I'll I'll bend the rules a little bit. But there are, there are boundaries I put to myself and I'll try to keep to them. But Well, I would agree, too. Like, if there is a game that has absolutely no means... To play other than having to emulate it um sure but i i still would find it really hard for myself personally because like, i know like i've said i know my once because then i have to download that emulator and then i see oh look i can play this game <laughs> that's that's a 100 hundred dollar game i could just play it right now if i wanted to because you go on the rom websites and you see them and it's like i don't even want to get into that realm it's not like i shun it you know i say to people too like today on stream i was playing a wonder song color game that is about a $1,000 game now, apparently. And I'm like, this is a great game. You guys should play it. Download oh, the freaking ROM. I don't care. I'm not RPG against game? it. Dicing Night. Yeah, yeah Dicing yeah. Night period. Which, for the love of God, that game, people are asking obscene prices for it. It ranges anywhere between $600 and $1,800. <laughs> oh, my God. There's actually one for 3000 for an alternate art copy on eBay right now. Hold so, on. Let me yeah. let me do something here, Pete. No. <laughs> <laughs> Snipe that. Yeah, Pete's it's like, use the affiliate nice, link. Please. But, you know, in that case... In that case, though, if you're not as hardcore as Bovine and I are in terms of collecting physical cartridges, just like, and if you want to play a game like that, just play the goddamn play thing. the damn game. Yeah. But for me, you know, maybe it's a life goal of mine. Let's say that I didn't own this game, 
this $1,000 game and I really wanted to play it. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe one of these days, it might take me 10 years, it might take me 20 years, but one of these days I may own that game and I'll be able to play it. And then that wait, that 10, that 20 year wait, and then I finally play it, (laughs) will be worth it. Even if the game may be shit, just that anticipation of having to wait and maybe finally getting it one day. Just the thrill of the hunt paired mm. with the anticipation of finally putting that thing in your system, playing it, let alone in front of a Twitch audience so you can share in that experience, to me, that's what makes emulation so off-putting to me personally because yeah. it ruins that experience. You don't get to get that weight and that experience. And I know not everybody wants to have that 10-year wait. They're like, but just play the damn thing. No, <laughs> I like, I enjoy the anticipation yeah i mean what happens if you you emulate the game one day and then four months down the line you know you run into it in someone's garage sale he's selling a ten thousand dollar game for like five dollars i mean you miss out on having the impact of that story by having played it previously in, in my mind so i totally see where you're coming at from there and i hate to use money as an object but i really do feel that when you invest money your hard-earned money into a game it makes you appreciate it more and it also makes you more analytical of that game because you're going to feel like it's not like you're trying to get your money's worth but you're trying to sort of like not just play it for 10 minutes and move on it Hmm. may make you more likely to invest more time into the game and maybe Hmm. notice certain things about it that you wouldn't have noticed had you just played it on emulator for 10 minutes before you decided you didn't (laughs) like it yeah, so, so far, we're, we're all in line with our rules so far. We've obviously talked about that in the previous episode. So I think everything mm-hmm. still holds true in relationship to repros, games that we play. But I will say there is one game. Like, I know Beater Tech, we, him and I, we've been talking about, you know, like, I want to play the version of Police Knots on something, somewhere, someday. And right now, you know, Police Knots, the only way to play the real Police Knots is to get an English-translated ROM over patched CD-ROM to play it on, you know, a 3DO or what was the other system it's on? I can't remember, but... I mean that's a game I feel like I will I will definitely want to play sooner rather than later. And if there's gonna gonna be another way that it comes out, uh, I mean that'll be something I have to go down the line. But even on top of that, like there's one game out there that I purchased a couple years ago that I feel is very relevant to this you know discussion. That's there was a company called PCE Works, and what they basically do is they specialize in making custom mm-hmm. collector's editions versions of rare PC engine CD-ROM games and, and card games. Basically, let me sum it up for you. I'll be the more cynical version of it. <laughs> they basically capitalize on collectors because they know that people want these games and they take the most valuable games, not so much the best games. They take the most valuable games that collectors seek out and then they re-release them in pretty much a one-for-one reproduction. They might put a little thing on there that says like, like a little thing of text. I don't know exactly where because i've never bought them but let's just say that yeah they they capitalize on the collector market like you would not they're like lrg games before lrg games was around but there is one game there that in their collection i needed to get my hands on and it was the deluxe edition of the akumaji dracula x collection so Mm -hmm. for everyone that doesn't know there's the game rondo of blood that was on the pc engine cd-rom it was only ever released in japan and is only available in the original form with japanese you know language and text so this company they basically took the game they completely translated it as faithfully as they could so you can play in they they give you a pressed cd of the game that has full english text and and dialogue i believe i think it's both and then they also give you a pressed version of the original japanese print of the game as well too so you know and they combine it together in this cool package but the packaging is completely original and unique which i think is completely fine 
Yeah, see, in that case, and that, that talks more to probably Zip Boys, you know, that kind of goes in line. And the game is essentially repro, if you think about it, but it's a very carefully thought out, very mm-hmm. lovingly put together package of a That repro stuff game. I'm okay with. Correct, yeah. I'm not okay with people that take reproductions and try to pass them off as like a one for one of the yeah, original. No, that's, I'm actually that's slightly different. not okay as well with reproductions that use all original assets, all original artwork, all like like essentially if you put it side by side with the original and you can't tell right away what's the real and what's the fake even at close examination i don't give a shit if you put a little tiny stamp in the bottom corner the fact that it is that close should not even be a damn thing okay you can't because then people that causes a whole host of other problems people people are really people are really devilish out there they Mm -hmm. you never know what people might do they might try and pass it off as uh, original. So even in this instance, right, let's just say that the case has a little watermark on it that says reproduction. What is stopping somebody from p- taking the disc? Let's say the disc looks like a one for one with the original. What's to stop them from just Nothing. taking the disc and just like passing it off as the real one? swapping it with the the original and getting a mint condition so let's say that they buy a used copy of the original game and the the game that comes to my mind is sapphire and the pc engine right that's an Mm -hmm. infamously expensive and rare game that has been bootlegged in the past years before bootlegging was even thought to be a problem this was a game that was super rare it's a shoot 'em up on the pc engine cd that was bootlegged like over a decade ago fake copies and they were one for one copies that only like the most expert of people like even most like even people that study the look of pc engine games would say it's really risky don't go for it because it's just that hard to tell the difference so what's to stop somebody from buying one of these pc engine works reproductions taking out that mint disc that even maybe it has like a different um like serial code on the disc or something Mm -hmm. like something so minute that even a collector wouldn't realize that that's not present on an original disc swapping it out with um, the scratched up original disc of the uh, the original version, and then just trying to pass it off on eBay as a original with yeah, a mint disc and the case right. is a little bit you know messed up. It's scary. It really is, um, and it's a scary world with cartridges these days too. Super Nintendo, for example, it's really really easy for people now to make a reproduction label. Yes, EPROMs and stuff like that are a thing, and it's you know if you open up a cart, you can tell if if it's a repro or not but the labels right i mean sometimes if you're spending a lot of money on a, a cartridge i want everything to be original i'm i'm pretty straight up with that you know i'm okay all right let me put it to you this way if i'm at a convention and i see two cartridges let's just use earthbound for example mm-hmm. both carts they're asking 200 dollars. one of them has a little nick in the label or maybe a little scratch, just a little one. And the other one looks as mint as mint can be, and they're both the same price. I will yep. buy the one with wear. Absolutely. Because to me, that just means it's a little bit slightly more chance that that thing is real. And I get really cautious when I find a game that is in looks too, too good mint condition. Like, <laughs> here's what I did. It's too good to be true, basically, is what it comes convention to. Convention two years ago, or a year, year ago? I don't even know. I lose track of these conventions. Someone was selling a bunch of... Uh, complete in box even though a lot of them were missing the manuals super nintendo games one of which was evo search for eden Mm -hmm. which i do not have in my collection so i had to use like an analytical process to determine if this was real because first of all the box was mint i mean this thing was minty mint the cart was mint the box was mint 
So before I decided to buy it, I had to take it over to another seller, and he had to examine the box with a magnifying glass <laughs> to examine the dot matrix of the printing on the box to make sure that this was indeed an original box. Because if you if you use a strong enough magnifying glass, you're able to see like the small dots like that the dot are apparently that pretty much print. impossible to replicate on printers today if you're trying to pass off a cheap knockoff. Um, but also I measured it too because the other games that came with it they were all mint, and some of them were stuff like Sim Ant and Young Merlin. I mean, if you're going to make reproductions of Super Nintendo games, you're not going to make a reproduction of Sim Ant. Five dollar okay? game. So you know, I had to go through this process to determine if this copy of Evo was indeed real, and it is. Um, but it was just so mint that it's scary because people can just make fake repro labels well, very easily these days. You're going to get to that next level too, where people are going to start scuffing up new labels to make them look worn, you know, so then people, it's will... <laughs> really hard to replicate wear over like a 20 year period. Though. I don't know. You I know. I'll put it tell. past some of these people, right? It's like, I start like questioning Sega, even those now. Sega Genesis inlays, right? The artwork. Mm. It's pretty damn easy for someone to take some, you know, decent quality paper and make a nice uh, reproduction uh, insert for the artwork on Sega Genesis games. So, you know, it's it's just really scary a time that we live in for collectors that look for 100% original stuff. And I know it might seem like nitpicking to some people where really, you're just like, ah, who cares? You know, it's just a piece of paper with artwork on it. What what difference does it make if it's the original or a one-on-one repro? But you remember, Bovine, that instruction manual reproduction for Crusader of Senti that someone's trying to charge $75 for on eBay. Mm. <laughs> I mean, like, what? What world are we living in that someone will pay $75 for a reproduction manual? Well, and the only reason it exists is because somebody bought it previously. That's the issue. Now, what makes me question is, if they are indeed asking $75 for a manual reproduction, that manual reproduction probably looks pretty goddamn close to the original to ask that amount of money for it. Mm -hmm. So what's to stop somebody from buying that manual? For their original copy of Crusader that maybe is missing the manual and they just had the carton box, what's to stop them from buying that manual, throwing it in with their original copy, complete, and then unboxed. trying to sell it on eBay a year or two later when they need money for as a complete box copy, and then suddenly you think you're buying an original and you're not. That's the scary part. Yeah, I mean, you know, you cannot control the evil that lurks in the heart of men. That is the problem, and you just got to be cautious. That's all it comes down to. And, That's why you got to collect for systems like CDI where no one gives a crap about reproducing. <laughs> no one's like, I'm not even going to try to repro that. So, <laughs> <sighs> Anyway, let's let's maybe get to one more question because mm-hmm. we're running a little bit long. So maybe we'll do Laura's question because she was nice enough to make us an amazing drawing. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Laura's artwork if you've frequented any of our streams. She did a, a cool little piece of artwork for Bovine and I to celebrate the conception of this podcast so thank you laura for that we really appreciate it as always thank you very much laura lulu and she also uh, did a two-part question pretty much one question for the bovine why don't you start with yours and then i'll answer mine sure uh let's see you have it there pete <laughs> yes i do sorry bovine yes okay it says and for bovine what was the first console and the first video game you've ever played or since you've been playing game boy advance quite a bit What's your favorite Game Boy Advance game at the ones you've played? Oh, good questions, Laura. I mean, I know that my first console, I mean, my first real console was definitely the Atari 2600. I know that for a fact because, you know, it's just something I remember being four years old and convincing my dad that this is going to be the biggest thing. So, you know, we went, we went over to Kmart, paid our $179.99 for our Atari 2600 video computer system. 
and the included game in there was combat. And I know I can't, the only thing I can't remember about buying that system that night was whether we just bought the system or did we buy a game on top of it. It's the only thing I've been trying to pour through my memory to figure out. But I imagine that even if it was the game that came with it, I'm pretty sure the first game I would have popped in would have been the pack-in game. So I know for a fact the answer there would be the Atari 2600 with combat being my first game that I've played in the comfort of my home. So I, mean, I definitely remember that. Fond memories. It's it's like the very first games right after that, they're a little fuzzy. Like I want to say Asteroids was very close afterwards. And I, I can't remember what the third game was. But definitely that is my first game and first system and first game that I remember buying. And then in terms of the Game Boy Advance, wow. I mean, there's, it's such a huge library. And I know for myself, having played through that system and a lot of the games on there, you know, back in the day when I had a flashcard and now obviously trying to make up for my sins by buying complete games and loose games. I mean, a lot of the games that I'm having fun with now, I can't really pinpoint one that so far sticks out because I feel that there's just so many games that will be in my future for streaming and purchasing for Game Boy Advance. I don't want to quite elevate titles up to that level right now. And it's funny because the game I'm going to pick out, despite having played so many good ones, it's like that one game that was recommended to me by Brian Blade, I believe, in my channel. It was this Hot Wheels game. It was uh, Hot Wheels. Oh, which one was it? It's it's part of a two-pack of game. It also stands alone. I think it's uh, Hot Wheels World Class Track Meet or World X. It's one of the... I'll get the title of the game. But this game basically takes the F-Zero engine that they used on the Super Nintendo. And they added a bunch of mechanics to the Hot Wheels cars where you can basically do stunts off of the jumps. And if you land them properly, you can get speed boosts. I mean... Basically, it's F-Zero with better jumps, more mechanics for getting speed, and like a cool drifting mechanic. Like For whatever reason, this game has really spoken to me when I when Brian Braid first picked it up. And it's just a $5 gimme game that most people probably pass off as a licensed Hot Wheels you know, garbage game. But it actually is, right now, one of my favorite games for Game Boy Advance. Now, is it my favorite you know, of all time? Will it be? I doubt it. There will probably be other games. I mean... Like Minish Cap has a bit special place in my heart for being a Game Boy Advance game that I played originally growing up. So that's fairly high up there, but I don't want to answer completely right now without having to take the time to think about it. But right off the top of my head, those are kind of the two games in order to answer your question now, Laura. Seems like a common theme with a lot of Hot Wheels games where, you know, I'm one of those people that always wrote them off. I never really played them when I was younger Mm -hmm. and even somewhat now, but I'm starting to discover that a lot of those Hot Wheels games that I avoided for all these years are turning up to be pretty amazing games, actually. They are. For the few that I've seen and the couple that i played. So her question for me uh, had to do, basically to sum it up, was she uh, she asked, she actually sent me a video, a link to a a YouTube video that I did, like, Jesus, it has to be close to eight years ago now that I did it, or seven years I always think it's funny, though, when people have to send me a link in case I forgot about a video I made on YouTube because it's really been that long. And in some cases, people are like, oh, you remember that video you did? I'm like, no, I actually don't remember <laughs> doing that video. Link, <laughs> yeah, can you send me a link? Uh, so in this case, she was kind enough to send me a link, but I do remember it. Uh, it was a video I did where I showed off some video game artwork that I had done just in my free time, just for the fun of it, stuff like Klonoa and Okami and a Black Mage fantasy and i don't know there might have been a couple of other things in there but yeah i mean i once went to college for art visual art uh drawing painting and you know it just got to a period where i started to get out of that right around when i was starting to start up youtube um and i just realized as time went on in college as much as i still loved art and i'm still very creative like i can 
definitely still do a painting or a drawing today if I really wanted to. But I just started to move away from that, and I, I realized that just wasn't my thing for a career, like a line of work, finding something in art, um, while completely doable, and I don't want to, you know, scare off anybody that decided to major in artwork or the likes in, in college or anything. But just for me, I realized that I didn't want to pursue that as a career and that's when I made the hard switch straight into journalism I went from artwork into journalism go figure right I mean it's like two complete opposite ends of the spectrum but I think it was the right choice and ever since I made that switch you know I just of course I didn't have the time to draw and paint and all that stuff after making such a drastic switch because normally when you major in that a lot of the classes you take in college obviously not all of them but a majority of them, you'll have at least one or two art classes per semester. So that always filled my my niche for sort of like, you know, needing to be Express creative in my artwork. Right. But at the same time, I felt like when I went from art to journalism and video journalism, it kind of helped because I had that creative eye, right? So that's why a lot of the, the journalistic videos that I did for YouTube, or at least the ones I decided to share, um, you'll notice that they're very artistically shot certain camera angles and whatnot and i do attribute that to my history with art but not to derail too much um she's basically asking if i still draw and paint and the answer is no um i haven't done an actual painting in god knows how long i'm trying to actually recall what the last thing was that i made in terms of like a drawing or i used to really like working in pastels and and whatnot i I got into perlers for a bit because uh, it was kind of a fun new thing to kind of try out that i did when i was a young kid and at one point I was doing them and trying to sell them and give them to friends and whatnot, but it actually started to kill my eyes because I was studying pixels blown up on a computer screen for hours on end, and it actually started to bug my eyes out. So I had to stop. I was getting, like, black spots. I would see, like, black. So I knew something was wrong with my eyes because I was doing too much perler beating. Uh, but I, I, would I do it? Yeah, it takes up a lot of space for the supplies. The supplies are expensive. I'm not really one for just, like, drawing straight up with pencils. I need the more expensive kind of, like, pastel pencils and pastel paper and canvases and paint. And Would I love to do it? Yes, but right now I just don't feel the... I don't have the motivation, the ambition, or the time to do it. Had I, If you gave me a canvas and paint and you told me to paint something... I've also never been that kind of creative person right if you gave me something and you said draw this or draw that or paint this i'm not really good at doing that from my imagination i usually need some sort of framework i need to be looking at something whether it's something in real life like a scene or so you're like a representative representative artist what do they call that i'm not yeah like something needs to be in front of me on a computer screen just a point of reference for me to actually create something from my imagination I'm really bad at that, usually. That's too bad, Pete. Like, from that video, those two pieces that I liked the most from what you showed was the Okami uh, paint. Was it? I can't remember what you used for the Okami picture. That was, uh, yeah, that was just, like, acrylic paint. But even that was taken from a reference. And, you know, it actually really, really, it it bugged me, too, because, oh, man, this this brings me back to that college class. And I must have brought this up in a YouTube video because someone referenced it one time and they were like oh yeah it was like that college teacher that you hated what the (laughs) hell are they talking about 
And then I'm like, wait a minute, they must be referencing the art teacher that... Okay, so there was this art project, right? It was like an art appreciation class or some bullshit. I don't even remember what it was. Such a stupid class. But (laughs) one of her projects was to create something and bring it into class for something that we love to do. So I'm like, oh, I love to do art. And I love video games. So let me do a few paintings for, for video games. That would make sense. So I do this painting for Okami, put a lot of time into it. I bring it in the class and she's like, I don't know why she singled me out. I was a quiet person. Like I never spoke up in the class. I never was disrupt- disrupted, nothing. I guess she was just like, you know, PMSing that day or something. I don't know what it was, <laughs> something. But she just decided to be like, I don't think you, because, you know, it was a deadline thing. It was like we had a week to do it, two weeks to do it. And she was pretty much boiling down to questioning the fact that I pretty much, instead of creating this for that class, she she pretty much thought that I went into my old archives of things that I had probably drawn or painted um, like years in the past or something and brought it in the class and tried to pass it off as something that I made for that class. Why? Which I don't that? blame her for because I brought in three like completely different types of art like pastel painting just three different things that look like they were pretty much made at different time periods but i'm like no i i really made this and god i the one one of the biggest regrets that i have in life is that i didn't like film a video of myself or take a picture of myself making this painting and then saying this is for your class mrs so-and-so or whatever (laughs) your name is and then when she accused me of having done this years past i could have been like here you go here's the video of me doing this right here here's the date here's me saying your name and then she would have been like oh but no she still really heavily thought that i had just pulled these paintings out of the past to try and present them as new artwork and i it was funny even in my book bag or my 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 little carrying case that i had at the time i'm like look here's a piece of paper that i still have in here where i had like paint rubbed off on the paper where i was painting it from um, where like say Okami was white, orange, red, whatever for the flames. And like I had the piece of paper that had the red paint, the orange paint, the white paint, like the exact same paint colors on there. And you know what she says? Hmm. She's like, no, you could have done that um, now to try and like <laughs> pass it off as something that why you did was, recently. Why was she I so have no idea. I've never, that? <laughs> I have no idea. I never spoke to this woman at length. I never said anything disrespectful to her. She was just like so pissed for some reason. And I was a good student. I still got an A in that damn class. Serves her goddamn right. <laughs> like she didn't even drop my grade for that. Like she knew because I, I was a hard worker in college. So there, you know, I always did my shit. So it's not like I was a slacker. All right. Maybe she's so, trying to like. Anyway, not to get on that rent for too, too long. But yeah, I, I don't know how that derailed into that college class man that just always bugged me it's not like i'm caught up on it but i always just thought it was so funny how this woman was just so dead set on trying to embarrass me in that class and i stood by my ground i'm like no this is uh this is definitely something that i did for your class so odd to be vindictive like that especially an art teacher you would think that there would be some leeway there but i don't know what kind of art teacher she was i mean it was like an art appreciation class so maybe oh, she doesn't true. even do artwork herself i don't think she does maybe she was just upset at the fact that she wasn't an art appreciation teacher in the first place <sighs> who the hell knows anyway thank you laura for the question and for evoking those memories <laughs> now pete's no, gonna be pissed. 
No, not at all. It's actually kind of fun to recall those those times. But no, I don't do artwork anymore. And not for that one reason. Just, uh, I'd rather stream for now, you know? That's the Maybe one day I'll do a painting. So. Yeah, yeah. So I think we have time maybe for like one game that we've been playing recently. That works. Um, so I guess I'll talk about the stream that I did today. And by one game, that pretty much means just a couple of different handhelds. Um, so I streamed some Gamecom, Tiger Gamecom, which is the quite innovative and somewhat ahead of its time handheld console that Tiger put out to kind of try and compete with the Game Boy that uh, failed miserably. It had titles released for it, such as Gem, Resident Evil 2, uh, even Duke Nukem 3D. You know, it had some pretty big names behind it, but it just ultimately failed because the graphics just were not up to par with the Game Boy. It had internet capabilities to go on the internet and check email. Blah, blah, blah. I don't care about those things. That's just a little bit of history behind it. I bought this thing because of the games. I mean, it has a Sonic game on it. And it's probably the worst Sonic game ever created. As I tried the stream today, it runs at about two frames per second. It does come with Sonic 2, 3, and Sonic and & Knuckles. Almost unplayable. Uh, it's a shame. It really is. And let's not forget this thing has touch controls, too. So some games actually make use of touch controls, like Lights Out, which I was unable to play because I couldn't find my stylus. <laughs> You can use any stylus, I think, for that system, right? Yeah, it wasn't worth the trouble, though, for Lights Out, let's be honest. <laughs> but, it, it, I mean, it was um, it was a console that I originally bought because the games were cheap. It was easy to try and get a complete collection for it, which I do not have. But if you're looking to get a complete collection for a console, the Gamecom is one of the easiest. I think it has, like, what, 10, 12 games or something like that. I don't recommend doing it because none of the games are all that interesting Resident Evil 2, which is actually a one-for-one recreation or reimagining of Resident Evil 2. Um, I'm not an expert at that game, but it does follow the same formula. The the layout of the map is the same. It even has some of the same enemy placement. Um, You know, it's got weapons and ammo. It's got everything you would expect. It's just got incredible difficulty where when I died, I was sent back to the beginning of the game after about 30, 45 minutes. So I'm like, nope. I found the save room too, but I apparently it didn't save the game. Uh, and then I moved like on. Resident Evil without a memory card. Yeah, exactly. It was it was a little hardcore, but graphically it was actually um, the sprite work in that is very detailed. That is one thing that it does have over the Game Boy. So if you look at a screenshot of a Game Boy game, and you look at a screenshot of a Gamecom game, it's actually <laughs> it's pretty striking how improved the Gamecom graphics are over the Game Boy. And maybe that was what they hoped to sell the system on. Once you see it in motion, it's god-awful. But still, screenshots make Gamecom games look absolutely amazing. Yeah. I mean, I remember the Gamecom. The big push there, technically, was that it could handle very large sprites, which obviously they take advantage of in games like Resident Evil in comparison to, like, the Game Boy. But everything Fighters like Megamix. Yeah, yeah Fighters Megamix was one, too. dive because of that. <laughs> Well, when you see it in motion, that's the problem. It has a lot of motion blur. Mm-hmm. They did a, they did release an updated version of the Gamecom that, you know, I think it was probably way too late where it was backlit and it somewhat improved some of the uh, motion problems, but it was still not 100% fixed. Yeah, I have that one. I have one of those backlit models, but apparently there were two backlit models, and I think I have the worst of the two or something like that. Oh, like I didn't boy. realize there was more than one model. but I, I didn't know that either. Well, it's good to know. 
I don't think I'll be buying one in the future, but if I ever see it, <laughs> didn't super, you buy super cheap. A, didn't you buy a new one just for the stream, too? I did. <laughs> I bought a new Gamecom. Well, it was at a convention, and I got it for like 20 bucks. There you go. So I figured $20 to show people the Gamecom on a stream was, was worth it. Um, and then I streamed the Wonderswan, specifically the Wonderswan Crystal, which was a console released in Japan. Um from Bandai that was meant to compete with the likes of the Game Boy Color and eventually the Game Boy Advance. Uh, that was actually huge in Japan. It was actually it was pretty successful. There were a lot of games released for it. Three different iterations. There was the original Wonder Swan, which was black and white, and then the Wonder Swan Color, which was pretty much the equivalent of a Game Boy Color to a Game Boy. And then there was uh, the Wonder Swan Crystal, which was a further upgraded version of the Wonder Swan Color, which allowed for like higher pixel density. Um, and far less motion blur uh, to the point where some games actually required you to own a Wonder Swan Crystal to play their games, such as one game that I played, Dicing Night Period, that I mentioned earlier in the stream, which is a roguelike action hack-and-slash dungeon crawler with randomly generated dungeons that looks and plays amazing. It could be yours for about $1,000. Like I said, <laughs> ROMs and emulation are a thing if you're into that. After you, um, the Wonder Swan is... Yeah, Wonderswan is great. Have you played the Wonderswan bovine or not? Uh, I just the funny thing you mentioned those three systems because when I was doing research and buying the Wonderswan, the funny my I think my little sister had a Wonderswan uh, color, which was the second iteration of the three that you mentioned. So she had one personally back in the day because she was learning Japanese when she was in high school. So and she's very interested into anime video games as well, which is awesome. So and I know she had a Wonderswan color at that time and. I remember, I think I borrowed it from her. I never gave it back. So in my library, I had like a Wonder Swan color, but I thought to myself, I should probably get my own because like the one I have from hers, like it wasn't working anymore. Like it wasn't reading the power properly. No matter what I did to try to fix it, mm -hmm. it wouldn't work. So when I went to go uh, purchase one, I didn't even realize that there was this third version called the Swan Crystal or I confused it or the information I was reading up. It wasn't very apparent that the third one was the one to get. So I actually ended up buying like a complete in box, you know, brand new wonder swan color version thinking it was like the best version i got it in i showed it on a stream and someone says oh did you know this better one called the crystal i was like god damn it <laughs> so <laughs> so i bought that version. it's cool so i have a complete in box wonder swan color that i'll probably never use but it was cool because it was packaged alongside uh the gunpei game which was the uh the last game that was made from the game boy creator it was a game called gunpei so the wonder swan uh, had a version of that game in the, that was for the color version, so it was kind of mm -hmm. like a two, it was like a combination of the two packs of the boxes look the same for the two. But later on, when I realized that there was a better one, I actually went through and finally picked up the Wonder Swan Crystal uh, a couple weeks ago. So I need to get a couple more games for it to figure out which ones are the ones worth playing. But I can't wait to look forward. I mean, I can't wait to play some of the games on there because the screen clarity of the crystal over the color it is oh, a massive so good. It's yeah. so drastic. Yeah, that's why when I was playing it today, it was actually the first time I'd played my crystal. It looked really since good since I had bought it. Yeah, it, it it surprisingly looked good on stream, but it blew me away. Like people probably were like, "Oh, here's Pete gushing again <laughs> over some random ass obscure retro <laughs> game." But no, like my God, when you see the Swan Crystal in person. Mm -hmm it just blows away anything from the time except for maybe like the animation of a lynx or something yeah but like just the the graphics on the sprites are amazing you you don't even see the pixels no it's, it's just so clear it looks like a flash game like the port of final fantasy what one and two that are on there they look simply amazing on that system it's crazy how good it looks but like some of the games they take advantage of the portrait landscape or the portrait setup of the mm -hmm. system too so you can actually hold it instead of left to right long you know lengthwise 
you can hold it in portrait mode, so you can have like I think there's a really expensive shooter game on there, right? Judgment that, Silver yeah, Sword. Judgment yeah. Sword. So you basically play the system tilted up, kind of like like the Lynx and the Vita and the PSP later on. But it was like I think it was the first system at that point to be able to allow games to be played in portrait and landscape. So yet another thing, yet another thing to entice people to pick up a Wonder Swan Crystal again, people. Wonder Swan crystal avoid the color avoid the black and white go straight they're a the little pricey though so be forewarned they're harder to come by and for sure more more expensive i'm yeah, not sure they're going right now but... 120 to 150 for the wonder really crystal. for a swan crystal yeah Man. that's crazy i picked mine up for like 40 or 50 i think years and years ago <laughs> thank god <laughs> is it worth it 150 these days um i would say yes if you're just getting in the wonder swan collecting but if you already own a wonder swan Mm, I don't know. I would sure. still say it's worth it. Sell the Wonder Swan color to somebody and then use those funds to get the crystal. It's, just it's before one, job. though, if you're getting into Wonder Swan these days, just keep in mind that a large majority of the console, I mean, the games on that system, Japanese. are Japanese games, RPGs, tactical games, games that you're not going to be able to play. More Gundam so please games do your research. Tons of Gundam games. Only like two of them are probably playable. Uh, but just a lot of unplayable games if you don't know Japanese, so be very careful. Yeah. Don't buy something with the cool box art because chances are it's all going to be unplayable. But that's a good sign, right, for collectors. That means that for the games that you can play for English speakers, you, you only have so many games to collect for the Wonder Swan then. Much more limited mm-hmm. library to work with. It's a fun console to collect for. It's uh, it's a little pricey. Uh, some of the games are going up in price, but, you know, it's... The thrill of the hunts, uh, like Bovine said, there's only a small selection of games that are playable, so, and some of them are a little harder to find. So, if you enjoy small cardboard boxes, it's a game system for you. Uh, and lastly, the game that I played on this stream today was the Tiger R Zone, but it's not the version of the R Zone that you're most likely familiar with, which is the head strap version where you have that visor that comes down over your eye. It took me a very long time to get one, and I had to pay over $100 for it um, with a few games. It was like 140 I used some eBay bucks for it, but, you know, when it comes down to it, it's still money. Like, those eBay bucks are still money. So I got the super screen version of the Tiger R-Zone, which is a tabletop version with a huge, gigantic screen that projects the cartridges using a backlit light bulb onto this gigantic screen, and it looks like a huge, not a huge, but like a, a decently sized tabletop arcade game to play R-Zone games. You know, those shitty looking, like, tiger handheld LCD looking games. You can now play them on a gigantic screen with a backlit <laughs> display. <laughs> Let's just say it's definitely a curiosity and an, a little bit of a, an odyssey when it comes to gaming handhelds uh it's certainly very rare this thing very rarely shows up on ebay uh, and the price is going up and up you used to be able to get one of these for like 50 60 and now they're just 120 easily doubled in price mm, yeah yeah they used to be fairly obtainable because no one gave a shit about the Arzone. but as video game collecting becomes more and more i guess mainstream we'll call it and more people want to expand their horizons and they find out about the Arzone. Or handheld collectors in general. I guess they're finding out about, you know, obscure variations. This is one of them. Um, (laughs) I don't know what to say about this thing. I mean, it's fun to look at from the perspective of look at the kind of crazy shit they were coming out with in the 90s for, for video games, right? I mean, Tiger handheld games on such a large display, it's just 
it's kind of ridiculous. It really is with the large screen. Um, the way they do it is awesome, how it projects itself. But when you're playing a game like Battle Arena Toshinden and there's only two characters and it's just like a basic back and forth like random button presser, and then you play a game like Indy 500 where it's just like the droning of a buzzing sound as you're racing and you're just... <sighs> They're Tiger handheld games. There's no two ways about it. The Star Wars game I played on there was some semblance of an actual video game that had some skill level to it, but it's you're still dealing with games that are just... I don't know, Bovine, how would you like describe a Tiger game and how the sprites are kind of like pre... I'm so bad with like the technical speech <laughs> well, for I these mean, things. The original Tiger LCD games, they were all... It was basically a screen that had pre-imposed elements already burned into the screen. So, And all it did was that the logic of the games would light up these elements. And you can basically think about it this way. So you would have maybe a guy. He would have his upper body, his head, his legs, and it would they would all there would be all of these elements where his arm would be outstretched or his foot would be outstretched. So the leg either the the character element can be standing there still with his legs straight down, or then if you hit a button that kick, it would you know, it would light up the element where the leg is moving is kicking forward. So they're all pre imposed elements. So if you ever turned on an L C D game, like a, a Tiger L C D game, it has to boot up it has to light up every single element that could be lit on this screen so you would see every single possible graphical element all turned on at once and then it would go to the default state where it now is going to you know program it's going to run the program that's the game so it starts with just your your character elements up and then as elements you know turn on the screen they would light up these elements so the this r zone it looked like it was just kind of like it was the same technology where the elements were inlaid and pre-programmed on these cartridges and they would project that inlay onto the screen of the R zone. Is that what it looked like, Pete? That's from what right. I can tell from what I saw. But Yeah, that's all it's that's all it's doing. I mean it's a it's a step above a tiger handheld um because it's it's like a deluxe con- arcade cab right. for the original L C D games. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. <laughs> I mean the the graphics are kinda no different. It's just that you're seeing them on a larger level, so you can kind of appreciate the details, quote unquote details, a little bit, a little bit more than on the small handheld. But and it is weird because the games are not enjoyable in any way. In a way, it has a backlight of sorts because there's a light source behind those LCD elements. You can get a better contrast between the element when it's on versus off. But it has some cool ideas too because the cartridges, when they came out with the super screen, they started including. Uh, screen overlays with the cartridges so instead of it just being like a straight up black and white kind of experience you would put this overlay over the cartridge which would then project so you'd have like this color background, static background in my case I only have one because they didn't make too many of them but my my screen background is um, grass and mountains and a sky which I think is probably used for like Battle Arena Toshinden possibly but you can use it for any game because it's just an overlay, so you can just put it on a racing game and suddenly you're racing on top of a mountain. Kind of like a reverse but, inlay for the Vectrex games, if you think about it that exactly. way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they, they, it was a cool idea. I mean, it really was. Um, but in the end, it's just a gigantic screen for Tiger Arzon. I mean, Tiger handheld games for the most part. There are some really crazy licensed titles that they have, though. There's a Knights into Dreams game on this thing. There's a Panzer Dragoon game on this. There's multiple Star Wars games. I mean, that was uh, the weird thing about Tigers, that they were able to obtain the licenses for all of these major games. Mega Man, Double Dragon, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Street Fighter. And it's like, I don't know how they were able to obtain 
the licenses for all these properties to create all these LCD games. It was insane. Have you ever thought about collecting Tiger LCD handhelds on uh, like you know, I had, a certain level? I mean, I had a bunch as a kid. I think I had about four or five of them, and I wouldn't mind having those back, but really they are so poor in terms of gameplay, and they just they don't even play well. Like I don't remember having that much fun with them. It was basically a way to have handhelds before the Game Boy came out, right? And we were talking about that mm-hmm. much earlier in the episode about those were essentially the first portable games that you know, I own. So it'd be nice to maybe pick up one of those, but the more I think about it, it just, they were not fun. The only one that I have any attachment to is I did have Sonic 2 Mm -hmm. and Sonic 3 when I was younger, and both of which were really, really actually kind of fun. I don't know. I'm sure if I played them now, they'd be absolute trash, but they were kind of fun. Pick up and play. Just go for the high score. See how far you can make it. There was some skill required. I guess it varied game by game, but the Sonic games did require some amount of skill. I mean, the Game Boy, the Sonic games required some amount of skill. I had Mega Man 2. Mm-hmm. And I had that one. I had one more. But I had a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one that was pretty interesting. Because it gave you control of all four of the turtles, which really led to a huge LCD mess. Because basically, the turtle oh, character was all the same. But then they had to have inlays or the, the pre element, the pre burned elements for all four weapon types. And the way they would swing one weapon to the next, it just looks so awkward. <laughs> I, th- I think the reason to collect these things, though, is the artwork yes. on uh, that surrounds the screens is badass. Like, <laughs> it's actually really colorful and quite detailed. It looks like a little mini arcade cabinet type artwork. So, I mean, if you're into visual, you know, the visual fidelity of the things that you collect, you might want to look into these little tiger handhelds. But I, I feel like these are the kind of things that you only collect them if you have some sort of memories of playing them Personal as a kid for yeah. when they were, yeah, when they were intended to be played by a young child and if you didn't grow up with any of them then i don't think you'll really understand the appeal the good news is they're really cheap too so i mean you can get every one of those for like five to ten bucks each it's not much the challenge is finding them with the battery covers on the back (laughs) they always are missing the battery everyone is 3d printing those battery covers now so it's not too big oh really yeah so it's that's like the biggest thing right now for 3d printing if you go on ebay and look at like covers for game and watch and Game Boy Color and like anyone that would easily lose the lid for it, you can just get a 3D copy printed version of it and a varying quality is a resolution, but it's a perfect. Oh, that's fantastic. Print. Yeah, it's really awesome. So if you're missing any peak, go on eBay, check it out. I like, I I just picked up one of those Coleco handheld tabletop games. It was a Pac-Man one, which is really nice. It was in really good shape. I got it for like seven oh, I bucks. I loved those things. Those are so awesome. Oh but my god, so... I had them. <laughs> I had them when I was younger. They were actually my grandma's, mm-hmm. and you know when she passed away, they they went to my aunt because you know a couple of them did, and a couple of them stayed with me. But then somehow I think they got thrown out by my dad when uh-huh. I was younger. I don't just like the story of we had a lot of them too. We had Frogger, we had Miss Pac-Man, we had Donkey Kong Junior, we had uh-huh. Zaxxon, and they're such amazing. Oh, I really want to get them again. Have you but seen they're how becoming much they so expensive? They're they're like this mini arcade machine. Yep. And instead of it being like a Tiger game where it's black and white, it lights up color with like LCD, really elements. bright, vivid <laughs> colors. Yeah, it's so beautiful, and they play great. They're awesome. Oh, Cubert too. I had Cubert. They're so awesome, but they are so goddamn expensive. It is how many? Don't even tell me how much they are now. You don't want to know, but how many? I I mean, like the Pac-Man one I got, which is one of the more popular ones out there because it's Namco licensed and it has you know the full artwork from the arcade cab on there. Like that one goes for routinely like a hundred to hundred forty dollars, and that's a middle range price for those Coleco handheld tabletops. Ridiculous. Oh well. I, I had like a ton of them too, and man, 
they do yourself a favor because my don't, dad's like don't oh you don't the play the these no more yeah don't look up the vows you just you yeah. just cry tonight but anyways, I guess I'll the have one to I reacquire them. Yeah, the one I bought it didn't have a battery cover like most of them will not because it's very you know rare to have that still intact. But I bought this 3D printed version. It fits so perfectly. They even put a label on there that looks like the original label. Very cool repro for the door itself. So, so so then you do feel that when it comes to repros for stuff like that, you're okay with having like an original unit and a piece of it as a reproduction. I mean, in that case, I definitely would make an exception because in order to find someone who's willing to give me the battery door for their mm-hmm. Pac-Man Coleco tabletop system or Namco system, forget about yeah. it, right? That it makes it functional. In, yeah. in the end, it makes it functional for you. Better than taping the batteries in, that's for sure. So, <laughs> I don't know why this popped into my mind while we were discussing. I think it was the Tiger R-Zone thing that kind of just... Are you familiar with the Adventure Vision console? The Adventure Vision? No, I don't know what that is. I think that was the name of it. It's known as being one of like the rarest game consoles in existence. It's the it it's the tabletop. If you do a quick Google image search to, uh-huh. just so you can see what I'm doing, it's okay if we hear the horse hooves type it oh, away. Oh, that's if you cool. Need to. It looks like a mini arcade system. Wow, that was quiet horse hooves, bovine. <laughs> I like that new low sensitivity. <laughs> we didn't even hear the keys on my end. Um, no, but it looks cool, right? It's like a tabletop, mm-hmm. but this is. Now, I wish I knew the history behind it. I wish I was Gamester 81 right now or something. But, yeah, it only had, like, four games made for it. Um, four. four cartridges, and you can put all four carts into... It had, like, four cart slots, so you can put all games loaded into the system. So it's, like, oh, this mini arcade cabinet, like, tabletop thing you can load the games into. But the cool thing is the graphics and the reason why these things are so expensive. They they go routinely when they go up for sale for, like, thousands of dollars oh, if they're God. in working condition. But like the, it's the way red. it worked is it has like this, I wish I knew the technical speak for it, but it has this um, cylinder inside that lights up and it spins to project the graphics onto the screen. Oh, the filament. And whatever. it breaks really easily. So, and when it breaks, that's it. I mean, it's, it's pretty much done. So when you find a working unit for that thing, it, and I've never seen one in person, so I've never seen the games in person. And I feel like it's probably like the Vectrix. Where when you see it online, it's just not the same thing. But when you see it in person, it's probably... Mm. That's like the one system that I aspire to own one day and will never own. Wow. It's 15 frames per second at 150 by 40 resolution using an LED gun that basically simulated a dot matrix display. Red on black display. Oh my yeah. god, this thing looks awesome. It makes it sound so amazing, doesn't it? I know. Oh man. Okay, I need to... <laughs> dot matrix display. I'm not going to oh, look god. at this. This is. It looks too cool. Oh my god. Yeah, Thanks they're, for that, they're super rare. Yeah. <laughs> the collectors just like drool over that thing. But keep in mind, it's, I see why. the games are rarer than the console. Yeah. So that's another reason you don't want to get one of them. So, so something to keep an eye out, folks, when you're out there in the garage sales. What's, uh, what's a game or two the, or whatever um, game you want to highlight that you've played in the past two weeks? Yeah, I'm only going to highlight, I think, two games here. Just, you know, don't want to go too long on this one. I know we've talked at length on a number of things, which is cool. But, I mean, like, two of the games that kind of stuck out to me I want to talk about was I played... So, <laughs> I played this game on the Game Boy Advance called Domokun no Fushigi Terabi. I'm probably mm-hmm. mangling that. But, what, basically, the character of Domokun, if you guys are not familiar, it's this mascot that was created by this Japanese broadcast company. And it's this guy who basically looks like... What do you describe him? He looks like a he looks like gumby except he's made out of meat and he's got these like tyrannosaurus teeth you guys probably know what Domo is he's kind of an unofficial mascot for my stream here but 
you know, one time when we were talking about it on streams, we just wanted to see like how many games there were. And when we did a search, it looks like there's only two games that were ever made with Domokun as the characters for the game. And one of them was this Game Boy Advance game. And, you know, taking a quick look, trying not to reveal too much about it, it looked like it looked like a game that featured Domokun in a number of mini games, which looked really awesome to me because if it was anything like where it was a collection of mini games such as WarriorWare or maybe even maybe a music rhythm game that would be awesome so had my eyes on it picked it up for like 25 bucks i think finally a couple months or a couple months after we figured it out got a complete box. complete price oh, nice. yeah, yeah complete box price. so um popped it in and it's exactly what it looked like it was essentially domokun it looks like it's hard to tell from the storyline obviously because it's all in japanese but basically it looks like a meteorite crash to the ground Domokun gets sucked into the TV, and you're spending the rest of the game basically having him maneuver through various very random strange scenarios to acquire coins to unlock more minigames. I don't know what the end goal is because, again, I couldn't figure it out, but the minigames themselves, I have to say, they were, there was about 25 plus minigames in the system. From what I can tell, we played about 25 of them. And they were all unique from one another, which was kind of insane to me to think about the package of games that are on here. But the crazy thing was the, the the level of quality of the games. Like, you got something so simple that looked like it was an 8-bit Coleco game where he was just placing ladders and climbing, you know, this tower. All the way but up was it to... was it done in a stylistic way where it's trying to emulate a ColecoVision game? Or yeah, was it just I a mean, really poor-looking No, no, no. I think it was intentionally because, like I said, the quality games, it just... From one game to the next, it would jump wildly from the way the characters look, the sprite animation, the pixel work. Like it was completely different from one game to the next. So as you were trying, we were trying to hit all the games. Like some of them were very simple. Like there was a home run derby style game where you were just they put you in a scenario where Domokun is batting at the bottom of the ninth. You know, two outs, runners, bases loaded, and if he hits a home run, you win the game. So the only goal is to basically time your bat swing and position the cursor to hit a home run but that's just one example of one game like the very next game it would throw you into would be a full-on music rhythm game where you were (laughs) you see notes coming in from three directions of the screen and you just have to move the cursor over to the note and hit the notes in rhythm and then all of a sudden the next game would be you in this kayaking event where it looked like you know it was kind of like a side-scrolling kayaking event where you're just you know rowing down this river trying to avoid obstacles and jump over them like it was amazing to me that one, there was that variety of games on there, but again, it was like the stylized look for every mini game was completely different from one to the next, which really give you, I mean, give you a huge amount of variety in terms of the mini games you're playing. Like, and even again, some of them were not very deep, whereas others they actually looked like there was a, they were more well thought out and could have been placed into, I won't say a full game, but at least you know, a, a great, a larger interpretation of a, of of a regular game. So. So is this game done in a structure where it's kind of like the kind of game where you play once and you go through the games and that's it? Or does it encourage replayability with high scores and revisiting certain games? Well, it, say? it definitely encourages replayability because you have to unlock the games as you go. So you have to actually do well in the early ones that are you know initially unlocked. You have to gain coins that then you then use the coins to purchase like the later mini games. Now, that mechanic wasn't obvious to me, and I actually had to, since I bought the game, uh, you know, it was complete in box, but it was pre-owned, but there was a save file on there that had the previous person's progress on there. So at first, I tried to play through the game on my own and see if I could figure everything out. Mm-hmm. And when I went through the initial couple of minigames, I, I couldn't understand how to unlock something. I just jumped into the save file, and this person had played enough so they have unlocked almost all the games and that's how we were able to jump around and take a look at them but there thank was god for that person yeah huh? i know right please thank you very much whoever it was that took the time to go through this domo game but i mean if 
there was like a high score element too, obviously. So you can, you know, just continuously play through the really fun ones to get higher scores. But I think the main point of the game would have been to get coins to unlock all of the mini games, which in itself is a fun game. And like I said, the variety of the games itself made it a decent game to go through. And if you're a fan of Domokun, obviously it's one of the few properties that has him in there. So definitely worth a pickup for me. Cool, interesting game. I'll keep my eyes out for it. I actually bought that game for someone for Secret Santa on Digital Press like mm-hmm. 10 years ago. They requested that game, and I remember looking at their list, and at the time I wasn't exactly sure what it was. <laughs> I, I recognized the character, but I had no idea he had a Game Boy Advance game, so I went through the lengths of going on Yahoo Japan auctions and importing a copy of that <laughs> to the, to here. It took like a month to get here, so I had to do it way in advance. And I remember trying to troll them where I took the game and I wrapped it in wrapping paper and then I put it inside of a Genesis case and then I took a piece of paper and wrote on the Genesis case like NHL hockey like 94 or whatever the hell it was like I tried to pass it off like I was giving them a really shitty Genesis <laughs> hockey game and they said when they got it they almost didn't even open it because they actually thought what I had sent them Genesis. was a was a, a <laughs> hockey game with like a handwritten title but then they they were very happy because you know you're the it's best so obscure of, who the, the hell asked for that shit for Secret Santa My <laughs> that's God. very specific ask right <laughs> Hopefully they may. Who knows? Maybe you bought it. Maybe it was did you buy it from game. someone in Japan or was yeah, it, from it was the from US? someone in Japan? So okay, all right. Just making sure. Maybe it was the same guy. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. I would. I would recommend it, especially if you enjoy those kind of multi mini game. You know, uh, multi game mini game cards. Really, really fun version of it. And if you're a Domokun fan, like I said, not a lot of games out there to to get for him. So definitely one of the few that I think it's worth it, especially for the price that it's at now. The other one that you found was a. Did you did you see if it was like playable possibly in in for non native? I don't know. Mudusama was telling me that the only other version, the only other game that has double kind of some PS one game, but he didn't have many details on it. So I have to do some research and figure out what kind of game that is. So I'll have to. Chances are probably not playable. But yeah, that would know. be my guess. But it looks pretty obscure. Like I, I didn't even know. Like in the initial research, we didn't even find that second game. So Mudusama is one that had to bring it to our attention while we were playing the Game Boy Advance one. So thank you for that, Mudusama. Shout out to Moodoo. <laughs> and then, um, like I said, the last game, the only reason I want to bring up this last game is because I just want to not plug, but there is obviously a game that we played through um, about two weeks ago. And this was, so a small a small subsection of my community and other streamers, retro communities, we put together this thing called Cart Club. And it's essentially, it's, 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 it's open invitation to anyone who wants to participate. It's basically a book club discussion on a retro game. So everyone votes on a game to be played. Everyone purchases, acquires, or finds a way to play the game throughout the month. And then at the end of the month, there will be a streamer that's selected to host the cart club discussion where everyone will you know, get connected via voice or chat into uh, the pre-selected streamer's channel for that, for that stream. And we'll go through some of the streamer, the host streamer will play through the game while everyone discusses various parts of the game, graphics, sound, gameplay, you know, uh, yeah, odds and ends, off-topic stuff, and you know we spent a good two hours on this game. And the game that we all played and picked was Monster Party for the NES. So, I mean, I won't go too much into the game only because I feel that in order to get like the full grasp of the game, people should check out the Cart Club episode one. You can find it archived on my stream here on Bovine Divine's Retro Game Chat. So, if you're interested to see kind of like the opinions of several people talking about one game and in a book style club discussion i would highly recommend you guys check it out it was a good time with everyone involved i think everyone did a great job bringing their own perspective points of interest backgrounds in 
discussing the merits of this NES game. So for everyone who's interested, please check it out. Take a look in again, Pete. We knew that since it was an NES game, you were not going to want to participate in the first month since, of course, you would want to play the real version. Yeah, and that's also a game that's that's a game that I'm on the lookout for because I'm holding off for my NES AVS before I play my NES games. Mm -hmm. And that thing is taking forever to get here. And Monster Monster Party is one of those games that I still need for my collection. And I really, really want that game Mm because I looked at gameplay for that a while ago and i just thought it looks so wacky and zany like the bosses and stuff yeah, in there i really think i know i'll love game. it and it feels like the type of game where the less you know or the less that you remember about it the better it probably is yeah i would say going into a completely so, blind no information that would be the best way to experience it, especially for you the way you yeah. enjoy games so I highly recommend you get that when you're avs whenever the hell it decides to show up and but, it's luckily not too expensive either it's like 60 for, complete 50 yeah for right now it's not too bad but it could feel like it's one of those games especially as you get toward you know horror months and things like that it might start creeping up there we'll wait and see but mm-hmm. but officially i wanted to obviously invite you to this next month's club uh, cart club game pete it has been decided it was voted on it's going to be finny the fish on the playstation what is it two i believe where is this game uh, okay i don't have that one but that is definitely a game that i'm aware of yep. and i'll definitely be on the lookout for that at but check the it conventions finny the fish and the seven waters on the ps2 not some a i don't even know what kind of game it is i'm going into it as blind as possible so i can kind of get the full exposure for the game but we would definitely welcome you if you wanted to come and join us for the next month's cart club discussion game pete cart club on a disc (laughs) yeah well it's too hard to think of something that would encompass carts and discs and we're gonna need to pick up a copy of that but i'm sure i'll be able to find it at the convention i'm going to yeah it's like seven to ten five or, to ten bucks i might as well just bring it up now even though people only have a few days notice but uh, long island retro game expo if any of you are on the east coast near the new york area i'd highly recommend making it out to that convention i'd say for sure if you're within several hours driving distance definitely come out the expo is growing year by year it's the third year uh, they had to move venues because it's just completely outgrowing where it was the previous two years and i've done a panel there um last year and this year as well i'll be doing one so come hang out and say hello highly recommend it and that that's one of many pod i mean podcasts one of many conventions i'll be at this year mostly all on the east coast so i don't think i'm going to be doing any flying this year unfortunately uh, no portland this year pete i don't know i'm i i really I'm trying to not spend as much money in Portland is like the one convention where I just go crazy. Mm-hmm. So it'll probably be a really good thing to not go crazy at Portland this year. Considering that there's like four local conventions that are within driving distance to me out here. Yeah, so I don't know. I might as much as I Portland is just so amazing. I'm not writing it off a hundred percent, but this is maybe the year where I take a year off. Makes sense. No, no problem. Not a problem. I may make, maybe I'll have to make it out there to one of the New York expos then. I mean, it would be hard to decide on one to come out to. Well, you let me know. We'll, we'll maybe give it there. another, give it another year or two, maybe for them to grow even bigger and bigger, because um, none of them compare to Portland, obviously, because Portland is just on a another another level. I mean, it's just gigantic. But I think some of these conventions out here are eventually going to get to that level, maybe one day. I mean, I have family out there in New York, too, so definitely I can sandwich an excuse around there to go shop around for some retro games. It's a little expensive in New York. But I know. the one little segment that I wanted to 
close out on, and I didn't prepare bovine for this, so if you don't have anything, that's okay, or if you need time to find something, mm-hmm. our little eBay segment uh-huh. where we highlight one thing or so. Yeah, I hear him. I hear him getting on his eBay right now. <laughs> where we we highlight one thing that we've maybe bought in the past two weeks, or at least since we recorded the last episode. And I, I picked out one thing here that I'm going to highlight. I picked this up. I picked this up today or yesterday. If well, today. Pretty. So I got all of this for fifteen dollars. Fifteen dollars buy it now. Five dollars shipping. So get rid. Do they list the titles? They don't. It's one of those ones you have to read. Picture. All right. So included in this lot of PlayStation One games, but there's a catch at the end. So don't get too crazy. <laughs> R. I'm not going to name every one of them, but you get 27 games. The highlighted games include Iro the Dragon, Ape Escape, Spyro, Year of the Dragon, Digital Card Battle, I think that's a Digimon, Crash Bandicoot, Digimon World, Tomba 2, Monster Rancher 2, Spyro 2, Ripto's Rage, Digimon Rumble Arena, Tekken 2, Gex, couple other garbage ones, Crash Bandicoot 2, Gex 3, Crash Bandicoot Warped, Tekken 3, Nightmare Creatures 2, Digimon World 2, Barman Man Party Edition, Digimon World 3, Mega Man Legends, and Yu-Gi-Oh! Forbidden Memory for $20 shipped. What's the catch? There's no games, they're just cases. And some of them... No, just the cases, but most have manuals. But, okay... I bought this because I just looked up one case. I looked up the case for like Mega Man Legends, and that alone goes for like twenty bucks. So I'm like, okay, that there pretty much pays for my entire lot. So now my challenge will be keeping an eye out for disc only copies of the games in this lot that I don't own. Like I don't have Mega Man Legends, so if I ever see a disc only copy of Mega Man Legends for cheap, and sometimes you can get disc only pretty, pretty darn cheap. So since I don't know which ones of these are going to come with the manual because they don't say and you can't see they only show the spines. Mm. But they say most do. So I'm just hoping and praying that the key titles have the good manuals. And then all I got to do is just acquire the discs and, you know, potentially get some of these games complete. Far less expensive than I would have paid had I bought them separately. Absolutely. A lot like that where you see, you know, just one thing cover the cost. Definitely got to grab those whenever you see those. There's just no, there's a no brainer, right, with those. Yeah, yeah, and there'll be there'll be some fun in the challenge of actually having them look for disc only games. <laughs> it might actually give me incentive at a convention where if I see a binder of PS One games to maybe flip through it. Pete's gonna be a filthy loose collector this year, guys. So watch out. Loose Game Boy games, <laughs> loose PS One discs. Never thought I'd see the day. <laughs> see what collecting is game collecting has done to you, Pete. <laughs> There's but. one last thing that I bought too from the mm. lots. I'm just gonna. I'm not even gonna read off the titles, but man, it just goes to show you. Sometimes you can find some crazy deals. I got this for twenty two dollars shipped. I didn't care what was in here, but for twenty two dollars, I got twenty eight Wii games. Um, most of them are kind of garbage, but it has stuff in there like Sonic Colors, um, Ben Ten, which looks okay, Kirby's Epic Yarn, Saint, which is a side scrolling shoot 'em up for the Wii. Um, a couple of Avatar games. It had Pokemon Battle Revo, which to me, I was like, I can probably sell this Pokemon game for the price that I paid for this entire lot. <laughs> so it's pretty much like getting this entire lot of 28 Wii games for free at that point. And I thought it might be kind of fun to check out and see how some games like My Skims 
my skims my sims sky heroes is or the ben 10 <laughs> games or g-force you know garbage like that maybe one of these games is actually open. like pets dogs too i mean who doesn't want to see that right everyone want to see that so, it's like if anything they're replacement cases if i ever need them that's true you can always cannibalize them right no i mean that's kind of been my justification for a couple lots recently too so kind of mine kind of mirrors yours this week but there was a lot I picked up of uh, Xbox, original Xbox games. So this was just a simple lot that popped up, nine games for $18 with uh, $10 shipped. So we're looking at 20 bucks shipped. And from the, it, and it's one of those descriptions from someone who obviously was not a game collector because they didn't open them up and tell you if they were manuals or not. But they did say they were all you know, in good condition. So it's one of those ones you take a chance on and hope you're either going to get the reseller who's clueless but has great games or maybe someone who knows what they're doing is trying to pawn off their... Sometimes there's no time to contemplate. You just got to bite it. This was exactly the deal because someone's going to snatch it up. I can't tell you how many times (laughs) I've been looking at a lot and like piecing out the prices of individual Mm -hmm. games and then I'm like, yeah, this is definitely worth it and then I go back and the thing sold in like two minutes. Yeah. I felt Sometimes like you don't this have was time. one of those, for sure. Because I was doing, you know, I was doing the refresh, it popped up, and I, I knew there was one game on there. So when I looked at the list, the, 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 the list of games here, and it was nine Xbox games, I, did, I already had, I only had two of them. So that's the other thing I kind of weigh out in my head. It's like, well, how many of them am I getting that I actually am going to add to my collection, not dupe up on, right? So the only dupe games I had were copies of Fusion Frenzy and Halo 2. But the rest of the games were The Suffering, uh, Shell Shock, Nom 67, GoldenEye, Rogue Agent, and then Sims Busting Out. Then the next two games were the ones that caught my eye, but it was The Incredible Hulk Ultimate Destruction and Ooh. Toe Jam and Earl 3. Oh, very nice. So, That's a I mean, great buy that you got there. Exactly. And just looking at I the I heard game that titles, Incredible Hulk game is pretty damn good, and Toe Jam and Earl alone is probably worth more than that entire lot. Exactly. Once I saw that one, I already knew, okay, even if the manas aren't there, then I'm getting it anyways. But the Incredible Hulk game was something that was, rem- it was a title that was recommended to somebody in my chat. So that was the other reason I had my eyes on it. So I got it, when I got them in, they're all in amazing shape. Discs are perfect. All manuals included, except for Toe Jam and Earl 3. But you know what? It doesn't even matter. Sense. Yeah, it doesn't matter at all. So You know, sometimes I don't care if a game doesn't come with the manual. As long as it has the case and the disc, I'm okay. You know, I tell myself I'll keep an eye out for the manual, but it's not the end of the world if it doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. I definitely don't prefer it, but if it's a good enough deal, I don't mind. Yeah, and the condition of all of these are amazing, so definitely it was a pickup well worth it. And then the last lot I picked up that was kind of along the same lines, you know, something again that popped up and had my own one of the games. So it was a Nintendo 64 five-game loose lot, not a complete in-box, of course, but the games that were on here, let's see, what was it? It was a $50 lot. Right, free shipping. So fifty bucks for five Nintendo sixty four games. So obviously it's ten bucks a game. But the games included were and the funny thing is I didn't have any of these games, which was always a plus, but it was a copy of Excitebyte sixty four, double oh seven, uh the world is not enough, the one with the blue cartridge, um let what was it? Automobile Lamborghini, Dual Heroes, and the last game was it is it called Dual Heroes? Yeah, Dual Heroes, and the last game was the Mystical Ninja featuring Goemon. So Oh my god, boom. <laughs> Lucky bastard. I know, right? It's that like, game's going up in price like yeah, you wouldn't believe. That game loses $35 already. This is a $50 lot. So, boom. Buy it now. Comes in. All of them are in great shape. Ready to go. I so. still really need to play that game. That's that's both of the games on 64 I've never really played and I haven't looked into too much. Mm-hmm. It's just that the price just scares me away every time because, you know, <laughs> I need it complete because all my N64 games are complete. So, the complete price for that game now is at least $100 yeah, typically. 100 so, it's really scary. 
I got my nice loose copy here, so I'm happy. Ten bucks. I'll take it. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll graduate to loose N64, but <laughs> I'll be they don't even have spine you. art, bovine. They're just gray, spineless, artless. Oh. Hey, that's the way they came out of the world. I got to accept them for what they are, right? So Maybe one. <laughs> anyway, I think that that brings us to the end of episode three. It was a long one, and I told Bovine, I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty tired tonight. Let's just record for an hour and a half. Yeah, look where that went, right? That's before our ranting and anyway, took over. So. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was a lot of uh, extended discussions on certain questions this episode, so hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Once again, thanks to everybody for all your feedback. We appreciate it. You can find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash podcast. And also on iTunes or pretty much any aggregate kind of like podcast listening site that you may use. But I mean, I don't know what people use besides iTunes these days. And also just a heads up that um, anybody that is a backer on my Patreon, Patreon name is Pete Dorr, if you don't know, uh, you can get early access to future episodes. Normally episodes are available by Wednesday evenings every other week otherwise patreon backers get access on sunday nights or pretty much monday mornings depending on how tired i am after recording like tonight i am so tired there is no way in hell i'm editing it tonight so it'll be up monday afternoon so <laughs> patreon backers on there get early access by anyway thank you guys for listening hopefully you enjoyed and we'll see you on the next episode in two weeks send us your questions if you have anything you want us to discuss not even a question if you have topic ideas it doesn't even have to be a direct question if you have any suggestions let us know in stream anything you might want us to discuss but if you want us to remember i know me you can tell me in stream and i may or may not remember uh two weeks later so please just send us an email with any ideas that you may have for topics and I, I'm not inundated with whispers like Pete, so if you guys have any recommendations, topics, Q&A, anything for the podcast, please, you can always whisper me directly through the Twitch stream, or as always, you can send any of your suggestions and topics and questions to RetroGameExplorers at gmail.com. See you next episode. See you later, Pete. Have a good night. Night? What if they're listening in the morning, Bova? That is true. Have a good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you're at in the world, folks. Thank you very much for listening. It's like the the Lord of the Rings ending. Wait, you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, right? Absolutely. Okay, good. Just making sure. I've known people in the past. Oh. So we get that I've done podcasts with before that have not watched the Lord of the Rings until they've pretty much been forced to watch it. Well, we can or just be give exiled them, from the podcast. We can just give them the nine endings in a row, right? They'll they'll get the idea after that. So. <laughs> This is the end, for sure. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, Pete.